Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Who's Who 1989 Annuals, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I'm nervous, Shag, because we are in uncharted waters here. <laughs> It does feel a bit rudderless, doesn't it? Yes. We've never done a Who's Who episode that was not a solid book before. And and a Who's Who that I really am not, you know, that I didn't buy off the newsstand. So I'm, 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 a, little, I'm a little hesitant, but, but excited because there's some fun stuff here. Some of these entries I had seen before, and some of these I saw for the first time in this read-through. And yeah. By, yep. I mean 10 minutes ago. Um so what we're going to do, folks, as, as you probably already know, I mean, you've been listening to the show for a while, I would assume. If not, welcome to the show. We are going to be reviewing the Who's Who entries that appeared in the back of the annuals that DC published in 1989. And there were a number of these annuals. So we're going to – there's so many entries in here. There's about somewhere around 50 total entries that were listed in the 1989 annuals. So we're going to split it up across two episodes. So there's this one where we're going to cover the Blackhawk annual, the Secret Origins annual, the Action Comics annual, the Batman annual, and the Flash annual. The next episode will cover the remainder of the annuals for 1989. Now, if you want to go – if you want to pause the show, go out to your parents' garage, dig out those issues and follow along, that would be awesome. But if you don't feel like doing that, Rob, is there a way they can see these images? Yes, you can go to our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. And normally, of course, we have a gallery post that features some pages from Buzu. But since this is not from a book and it's spread out over three or four books, as which I just mentioned, we're going to have all the entries so you can follow along. So just go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. Awesome. Now, before we get rolling, as odd as this is, on a comic book that's almost 30 years old, there's some news to talk about. I'm a bit stunned myself. Have you seen this thing I'm about to talk about yet? Yes, there are some new Who's Who entries to talk about. <laughs> Insane! DC Comics, at, at the time of this recording, these just came out yesterday, DC Comics released a free giveaway mini-comic. Almost a sampler, you might yes. say. Yes, in my hands. Uh, it is to promote the new line of books called DC's Young Animal. I, quite frankly, I don't know a lot about this line. I know other people listening do know more about it. I know Ger um, Gerard Way is involved in this line. I, I literally got this comic about, I don't know, three hours ago, and I've been with my family since. I haven't even read a single bit of it yet. However, it, when you look at the cover, it is designed like a who's who cover. It has a lot of different characters. They're all doing different action steps. Now, the, these images are clearly taken from other things, so it's not like one unified picture like a George Perez type thing. But there's lots of different images on here, and it's, it's got characters like Robot Man from Doom Patrol. It's got Cave Carson. It's got Shade the Changing Girl, which is a new, uh, a new iteration of a character, and several other ones. It is a lot of fun. And then it has sort of the cover dress. It has the sort of symbol that Who's Who has, but instead of saying Who's Who, it says DC's Young Animals. And then it's got the little box on the cover with all the names of the characters mm -hmm. inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's even borrowing some of the original Who's Who entries. That's true. So it says Comics for Dangerous Humans, and the entries include Shade the Changing Girl, Cave Carson, Space Case, Mother Panic, Some Nonsense, Robot Man, Wait, Who Is This? 
pickaxe person and C-list guy. <laughs> it's it's all in black and white. It's absolutely adorable. We'll throw a couple of pictures up there on the website as well uh, in the gallery post. Uh, and I mean, oh gosh, it, I don't know. What, what, you, I've been talking a lot. What do you want to say about this? Oh, well, I just thought it was cute. It's a, it's a neat little marketing gimmick. It's, it's old timey, but sort of new too. I, I liked it. It makes me want to kind of give these books a chance. Uh, just, you know, I like uh, the little page with all the photos of the artists. That kind of was like it reminded me of those, um, those pages they used to run in the back of DC Comics in the '60s, where it was like. So and so won an Eisner Award, and it was like that drawing of Neil Adams and Bob Ostner and stuff. So I like it; it's fun. I think it, I think it's uh, it's really neat, and I love the the who's who. I mean, just it's. I feel like we had something to do with it. You know, it, <laughs> isn't that terrible? Like I feel like that too, but <laughs> that's pretty arrogant of us. The, the the four titles in the DC's Young Animal line include Doom Patrol, which is coming in September; Shade the Changing Girl, which is coming in October. Cave Carson has a cybernetic eye. That's the name of the comic. I kid you do not. Coming in October, and Mother Panic coming in November. So it, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I really think it's a cute, cute piece. You know, I recall in the back of my head a couple of years ago, some artist slash writer put together a piece promoting their independent comic in the style of a who's who entry. And now that I think about it, and I can't swear to this because this is off the top of my head, I think it was Gerard Way doing something for the Umbrella Academy. Do you, does this ring a bell at all? I, re- I don't remember the details, but I do remember somebody doing something like that. And I think it may have been during the course of the show because I want to say somebody texted us or messaged us about it. But either way, um, absolutely fun. Great, I gr- Loved seeing DC embrace their history this way. I mean, I, I got to imagine Gerard Way had to talk them into this piece. They're probably like, you want to do what? <laughs> And he's like, hey, my, he just goes, My Chemical Romance. And they go, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Okay, we'll let you do whatever you want. So, folks, hit your local comic shop. They probably have a few of these left uh, sitting around. If not, you know, like I said, we'll put a couple of pictures up on our website. So, lots of fun and exciting to have news. Hopefully, someday, before the end of this podcast, we'll be able to talk about DC's new Who's Who or collected edition of these Who's. Mm. Speaking of collected editions, this would be a good opportunity for us to thank one of our sponsors. Good folks, segue. Hey, you like that? I was all planned out, baby. Yeah, sure it was. <laughs> this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, bud? Uh, since we're going to be talking a bit about the Blackhawks, uh, I wanted to do a Blackhawk comic. Unfortunately, there are not a lot of Blackhawk collected editions, and there's only a couple available in stock trades. But one that is, is the Volume 1 of the Archives. The Blackhawk Archives reprinting military comics numbers 1 through 17, plus a map of Blackhawk Island, which is a fun little feature. The writers are Dick French, William Wolfolk, Bob Powell, and some hack named Will Eisner. And the artists are, you know I'm being sarcastic. No, um, I think you really meant that. Right, okay. And the artists are Chuck Quidera, Reed, and Reed Crandall, and others. Uh, it's uh, 240 pages, hardcover, normal price $49.95, but in stock trades price is $27.47. That's 45% off. Volume 1, The this is just called the Blackhawk Archives, but it's the Blackhawks, of course, because it's the whole team. It's their stories. If you love that kind of old 40s Blackhawk stories, this is the good place to start. And and if you were a Blackhawk fan, what what might a Blackhawk fan yell? I did. I wanted to save that for later, but okay, but, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Terribly sorry. Terribly use sorry. Use it as a oh. punctuation. Yeah. 
<laughs> Folks, I also tried to find something and had didn't have luck. I was looking for some 1989, either Flash comics or Batman comics specifically. I thought, thought it'd be kind of fun to pull out maybe the many deaths of Batman or some of the early Mike Barron or uh, maybe Bill Mester Loeb's Flash stories. But I had uh, sadly no luck. Not even Batman Year Three. So. What I did sum across, since both Barry Allen and Jay Garrick have entries in this, in these, I, I, I'm trying to say issue, but I guess it's not an issue, in this run of Who's Who, I guess you could say. Anyway, I picked a DC Library Flash of Two Worlds hardcover. Now, this is a collection uh, with featuring lots of Jay Garrick and Barry Allen team-ups, including Flash 123, which of course is the famous Flash of Two Worlds. Also, Flash 129, 137, 151, and 173. All told, it's 144 pages, but folks, this is a hardcover. So this is a gorgeous book, which normally retails for $39.99, but you get it for 45% off right now, which is only $21.99 for Gardner Fox, John Broom, Carmen Infantino, Joe Gillis, Sid Green, and Murphy Anderson. Come on. You, you know that's worth that amount of money, without a doubt. And it's full color, so you know, get to see all the pretty reds. So, folks, for these and your all your uh, collected edition needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Yes, we also have another sponsor. That's our pals, David Gallagher. And Steve Ellis, who do The Only Living Boy. Uh, the Jungle Book meets The Island of Dr. Moreau in the second volume of The Only Living Boy, Beyond Sea and Sky, on sale now from creators David Gallagher and Steve Ellis. Recently nominated as one of the best comics for younger readers for the 2016 Harvey Awards, The Only Living Boy is an action-adventure series for the young and the young at heart. Captain America and Flash author Mark Wade says, Paul Pope and Jack Kirby never had a chance to work together, but if they had, it would only be slightly less awesome than this. The only, <laughs> the only Living Boy is ready to join the ranks of books like Bone and Amulet as one of the very best, says Blaster. The Only Living Boy, Beyond Sea and Skies, on sale now, wherever great graphic novels are sold. Learn more at papercuts.com. Everybody, go ahead and get this book. It is super fun, and we thank them for their sponsorship. Awesome. Now, as we get into these entries, we're going to be covering these Who's Who entries, as we talked about. And just to give you a little background on the Who's Who entries, the ones that are presented here in the Who's Who, I'm sorry, in the annuals, are very, very similar to the ones that were in the Who's Who series. So it's not like a big break from the format style. You're still going to get you know, your powers, weapons, you're going to get their history, you're going to get their, their physical stats. There's a few changes we'll talk about here and there throughout it. Not much, though. And most of your characters are going to receive a full-page entry, unless it's maybe supporting characters where they get some half-page entries. In the foreground, you're going to get the main character in full color. In the background, you're going to get uh, what's called a surprint, which is a single color, represented with different things, maybe their origin, the hero doing something with their powers, something along those lines. Now, Rob, I will say there is one major difference from the Who's Who magazine or comic book that we've been covering for the last, I don't know, 20 years, it feels like, to these Who's Who update entries. No yellow dots. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. catch it either. That's a big change for us. I mean, apparently the people in the D.C. offices were probably pretty happy about yeah, it. Yeah, they but really the hated us, those yellow dots. You're right. You're right. When Chris sent me that message yesterday, I cried myself to sleep last night. I just, uh, it's, it's that disturbing. <laughs> now, I have to say, going into this, I don't know, this, this sounds mean, but I didn't really take these annuals real seriously leading up to this. I wasn't too excited about doing it. I wasn't thinking too much about it because in my mind, I was like, okay, this is going to be like the updates, you know, update 88 especially. Like when you got to an established character, it pretty much was like a little bit of history and then everything that had gone on that year. You know, they really focused on what was happening at that moment, which is fine because it's a bit of a promotional piece. So I was kind of expecting that from the annuals. Boy, was I wrong. Honestly, these are some really great entries as far as just being classic who's who, their full history, not just focusing on what's going on today. A lot of different artists from different time periods. I, 
I was really impressed and uh, pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I find there are some real high highs here, and there are also some real low lows. Okay, fair enough. Now, the order we're going to do it, I mentioned to you earlier, as we're going through, what, what we did was we broke down basically the release date. We figured out which one of these annuals were published first, follow the release date, so that's what we're doing. That's why we're starting off with Blackhawk, because that was the first one to come out in March of 1989. All right, well, let's start. With, we start off with Blackhawk. The uh, Bart uh, Jonas Prohaska uh, is, is his uh, real name. It's drawn by J- Rick Burchett. I love this drawing. It's a really nice drawing. And there's a little bit of um, zipatone over his eyes that's uh, using the shade from his hat, which looks really terrific. So, And he was the artist on the Action Comics Weekly feature for Blackhawk. Uh, it's really spiffy. It's really nice. And it gives a whole the, all the backstory that they had introduced into Blackhawk with the recent comics, the Howard Chaykin version, and then the Martin Pascoe run again again in Action Comics Weekly. So this, this new listing is following that sort of revised history and sort of what Black Hawk did after World War II and stuff like that. It is absolutely gorgeous. This is just a breathtaking piece. The art is gorgeous. The, the coloring, I don't know whether this is, uh, it looks to me like sort of almost painted. You know, the way the coloring is soft, the blacks are soft, the, uh, it's just the, the way the, the, the things blend together and it just look great. And then that chiseled chin he's got. I mean, man, Rick Burchett just knocked this thing out of the park. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, I did learn some surprising things. I, and maybe uh, maybe some of these were in the previous Blackhawk entry. I don't recall. In fact, I, I, I'm going to get to some other feedback in a minute. But some of the entries apparently were lifted almost word for word from previous like update entries. I don't remember that. I didn't compare them side by side. So some of this may have been in others. But reading it today uh, kind of jumped out at me that Blackhawk at one point was a communist. That's right. From 1936 to 1938, and he was denounced by who? Stalin himself. Oh, that's right. Okay. Wow. So, and then I like at the end where they say that he may still be alive. Yeah, I know. Yeah. His, his activities post-1955 remain classified. His current whereabouts, if he is still alive, are unknown. That's awesome. Now, hinting at what you were talking about earlier, yes, this, is, this one does have some format changes. You don't have any powers and weapons. They do kind of sort of talk about it at the end, but just without a header. Uh, and then in, instead of a first appearance, it gives their, it gives their actual birth, date of birth and location. You know, he's born uh, October 31st, Halloween, 1912 in uh, Krakow, Poland. Wow. I think they just say Krakow. They don't say it like it's a comic book. I, I think it's a comic on here. It's Krakow. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It looks nice. It's a good way to start. I mean, I I have some mixed feelings about the whole revised Blackhawk thing and kind of what Howard Chaykin did to the Blackhawks because he, you know, put a lot of his Howard Chaykin-ness onto the Blackhawks. But is that, uh, is that when Blackhawk fell on hard times and everything after the war? Is that what yeah, that Yeah, was, yeah, and yeah. there was a, you know some other things. Uh, but uh, but you can't fault this entry. This entry is Ugh. really beautiful. It's got a real Mike Parabek kind of energy to it. That's yeah. Kind of really classic uh, classic uh, style with a little more detail to it. I mean, I love these. They have the revised Blackhawk logo. The plane is in the background. It just looks super. It's really spiffy. I can see this as a poster. It's that nice. Yeah, it's really nice. So uh, next up is Lady Blackhawk, yet another uh, woman to bear that designation. <laughs> this, this version is a Natalie Reed, who, uh, as it mentions in the occupations, uh, was an actress, a model, an aeronautical engineer, and a comic book writer. Because, of <laughs> course, there is one woman that could do all those things. And she was never really a member of the Blackhawks. She was sort of like this ancillary person. We see her in a plane. We see her flying with the – there's the – Taken on the Nazis, you see her holding a gun. Uh, it's it, by Eduardo Barreto, uh, which Woo-hoo. means it's very quite nice. It's a, it's really nice. I mean, he's a terrific artist and looks uh, looks super. 
I think you, I could dare is to say that she's actually quite hot. Beautiful woman here. Now, I do bring into question, I see her, for, you know, she's, she's got an eye patch. You know, she lost an eye in an incident they talk about. And shows her behind the plane, you know, under the, the canopy flying the plane. Is that really that wise? Someone with only one eye, so no real depth perception flying a plane? That just yeah, seems dangerous to me. I don't believe she would have passed the physical, yes, tests. I mean, the guy, they rejected guys in the 40s for flat feet, let alone somebody missing an eye. But, you right. know, she's Lady Blackhawk. She's clearly pretty tough. She's got the jodhpur. She's got her, her gun. Uh, you know, I mean, she's you're probably not going to mess with her t- too much, even though the fact that she wrote comic books, which means she's probably, you know. <laughs> she's got a quite interesting history with her family and the Communist Party as well. And again, you guys can read all that when we post it on the site. But it mentions here later on she has a baby. And it it almost sort of like is hinting like there's a there's a it leaves it sort of dangling as to uh, it talks about you don't know who the identity of the father is. And it talks about the baby being born. It made me wonder, like, I wonder if they used that baby years down the line as some other Black Hawk-related character, somebody who took over the company in the 80s or something like that. Because he was born in 1945. It just seems like that's almost like a dangling plot line. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure somebody must have picked that up over the years. I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I, I'm a big Black Hawk fan, and I feel ashamed that I don't know this, but I feel like there really wasn't much like were there any Blackhawk comics between Action Comics Weekly and the New Fifty Two? I feel like there was never another series. I can't. There might have one. been. There might have been something, but I mean, but my, nothing that would have lasted. It would have been a miniseries at most. But I'm thinking more like you know some supporting characters in a comic, and they they talk about because I remember there was a there was a a modern day like Blackhawk shipping company or something like that mm-hmm. at some point in the DC universe, and I, I'm 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 really reaching here. To, to, to follow this plot line. It's probably not worthy. So I remember that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, the only remainder, last thing I have to say about Lady Blackhawk is poor Zinda. Uh-huh. How I miss her. There was a bit, and I remember reading in the end notes in Kingdom Come, where I think it was Alex Ross's idea to make the pilot that delivers the A-bomb on top of Superman and Captain Marvel a Blackhawk. Mm. And it was Mark Wade that was like, no, no, I don't want Black. Like he, I may be reversing it. It may have been Wade's idea, and it was Ross who didn't want to do it, or the other way around. Mm. But one of them was like, no, I love the Blackhawks, and I don't like the idea that they're the one dropping a nuclear bomb. But eventually, you know, they relented. We're like, oh, it just makes sense. And you do see him uh, saluting like the the United World Council or something as as he gets in his plane to drop the bomb. There's a guy standing there with a salute, and he's wearing a Blackhawk uniform. Well, if there's a plane, nine times out of ten, you're going to put a Blackhawk symbol on exactly. it. I mean, remember, we read that DC, or it wasn't DC Comics Presents, it was one of the Super Sun stories. And a passenger airliner crashed into a building, and Superman and Batman were saving anyone. And it was a Blackhawk plane. Right. <laughs> because it was Dick Dillon, and he just wanted to draw a Blackhawk plane. And he, and he drew Blackhawk for many years. Um, yep. There's a that, that picture that I have posted on my Facebook page a couple times of, of me at the Kubert School, and it's me, my Ace Killer partner, Dan O'Connor, another one of the students, and we're standing behind Tex Blaisdell, mm-hmm. and it's the whole uh, Jedi and the three young, uh, three young apprentices. I am wearing a Blackhawk T-shirt in that picture. <laughs> you uber nerd. Ship and sail on that, so... Uh, next up, uh, this is, they're not half pages, sort of, they're sort of split pages. Yeah, that's two, the best way to describe yeah, it. Yeah, two members of the Blackhawk team, we have Andre, and, uh, the guy formerly sort of known as Chop Chop here, he's called Wen Chen. <laughs> what? Not, not, ro- not racially insensitive at all. Well, that was his name. It was good. So anyway, the Andre one is drawn by Rick Magyar, and the Wen Chen is drawn by Bill Ray. I'm not sure what... 
Wang Chen is doing in this drawing. Uh, he's kind of doing a codename assassin thing where he's running in the air. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of silly, but it looks neat. And the Rick, the one by Rick Magyar is really quite nice, really very beautiful, very detailed. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like he must have done it for originally to be shot, uh, printed bigger than, than yeah. what this got because he really gets uh, quite detailed and there's very little information. Again, it doesn't do the first appearances. It just gives the history. It doesn't mention where they were born. It says Andre was born in uh, Paris, France in 1907 and Wang Chen was born in 1927, Hong Kong, China. So it's just, you know, and it has the little Blackhawk logos, little banners. Uh, Andre Blanc Dumont and Wang Chen. Everybody Wang Chung tonight. Or better yet, I could say uh, Doctor Who and the Talons of Wang Chang. That's just for a couple of my nerds out there. Other than that, I, I guess they're very nice drawings. I didn't have a lot to say. I, I read yeah. the entries. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's I don't, like, read, I don't, I don't yeah. read Blackhawks, so I don't get much of this. <laughs> the, the, these guys have barely more information than Legion of Substitute Heroes. Yeah, the that's fair to say. Entries, so. But yeah, the, the Rick Maggie art is stellar. Yeah, I, and I, I imagine it's right. I mean, when someone says, I need you to draw a who's who picture, they're probably imagining they're getting that same size as everyone else, and that's yep. probably true here. So yeah. That's fine. It mentions that Wang Chen is apparently is uh, presently chairman of the board of Blackhawk Express, the current incarnation of Blackhawk. So. It's very nice of them to be apologetic for being so racist and try to give him a real job. Well, okay. Next, <laughs> another, another split page is next. Uh, here we have Chuck, and another member of the Blackhawks, and then a new character, uh, Quen King. I'm sorry, King. Quan Chi, a.k.a. Merzi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's one of the new characters. Uh, I can't exactly tell who drew these. They look a bit like Stephen DeStefano. I should have asked him before it's, I did this, but they... It's driving me nuts. Yeah. Because if you look, each one has a little signature. Yeah. It's a. It's like a cue that's not facing the right way. I'm kind of, of I think that's his... Signature as well, Stephen, yeah. amazing man, Stephen DeSafana. So I'm pretty sure that, and it certainly looks like his stuff. So yeah, I had a note that it looks a little bit like some Joe Staten in the '80s to me, but got that cartoony sort of feel. Not exactly like Joe Staten, but a little bit. But yeah, Stephen DeSafana would be a better guess. Yeah. So and they're both they are he clearly planned them together because they both have sort of a similar theme. You've got the flag in the background, and then these eagles swooping down. Uh, Chuck is in his classic Blackhawk costume, and Wang Chen is in her Blackhawk Express sort of uniform. So, Now, the only thing I'd say also about this one, it's a little weird, in that Chuck is first, and then Merze second, but their drawings go the other. Yes. So maybe it's like manga. You read right to left. Maybe so. Uh, next up is another, again, yet another split page. We have Olaf, one of the class, classic members of the Blackhawks, and then a newer member, Grover Baines. This is someone that I am almost entirely unfamiliar with. I read the Action Comics Weekly Blackhawk comics when they came out, and I haven't read them since. So since they don't list his first appearance, I can only assume that he first appeared in those things. Uh, the Chuck, uh, the I'm sorry, the Olaf listing is by Bove and John Workman, and the Grover one is by Tom Zucchio and Rick Magyar. Uh, again, you don't really see much of Grover. He's kind of got his shoulders up, and he's looking sort of hunched. But he looks cool. It's a very stylized piece. Yeah, it's a very moody moody piece. Sorry, I interrupted you there. 
Nope, that's I don't again. I don't have a lot to say about these listings. I need to go back. Maybe when uh, he who must not be named does his uh, Action Comics <laughs> Weekly podcast, I will go dig these issues out and reread them because I remember in liking them at the time. They're written by Martin Pascoe and Rick Burchett did the artwork, and I remember thinking it was kind of spiffy. It was a little bit of a mix of the Chicken stuff with some other classic Blackhawk elements. So maybe I'll go out and read them again. But I just don't really remember this iteration of Blackhawk very much. Okay, Rob's been dancing around it. I'll just say it. There's a guy, his name's Little Chad Bokelman. I love the... how you said you weren't going to mention him today, and then you go right out and do it. My no, God. I fully intended to mention him. You said I shouldn't mention you him. You fold like a house of cards. You said I shouldn't mention him. Anyway, we had a big argument online today, which really was full of crap and hot air and actually pretty funny. But, yes, Chad's uh, Action Comics Weekly podcast, folks, it is finally dropped the first episode is out i know i can't quite believe it myself he's been promising it for like i want to say since i was in high school anyway um it's out now go grab the first episode i'm excited i haven't even heard it It just came out a couple hours ago at the time this recording so i haven't heard it yet but congratulations to chad for getting out his action weekly action comics weekly podcast we're very excited for him and i do like the drawing of grover i think it's very very moody and it's interesting. I'd be, I'd be interested, I would be interested to hear what you say when you read the comic because it does talk about how he was dismissed from the Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. So, oof, that's pretty stern stuff there. Yeah, the Martin Pesco did a lot of adding of members and subtracting members and the whole and in the Blackhawk Secret Origin story, which I will be doing with Ryan over on his show. Uh, there's all these other members that they added sort of retroactively. So Martin Pesco definitely decided to not keep like the classic unit of just like those six guys and he he added a bunch of people so well that's probably a good way to go i mean that's a creative way to make it your own and yet still honor you know yeah i could see i mean it makes sense sort of you know dramatically that you know it wouldn't just be these guys necessarily so So all of stuff all of these appeared in black hawk annual number one so if you want to see more of these folks again check out our website or go pick up that annual the next annual we're going to touch on is secret origins annual number three Came out on April 4th, 1989. By the way, all these dates, courtesy of Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Thank you very much. Now, you've probably heard the entries we're about to talk about. Uh, you've heard them recently. They were talked about on the Secret Origins podcast. Ryan and uh, Chris Franklin and Nathaniel Hubbard and Tom Panarese all covered these entries uh, just a few back on not too long ago, June 27th of 2016. So you can go back and listen to that episode, again, Secret Origins, annual number three. And uh, let's just dive in here. First entry is Flame Bird with art by George Perez. Folks, it is absolutely stunning. I mean, it's it's George Perez in his prime, so you know it's going to be gorgeous, doing Teen Titans characters. But this one, he just went above and beyond. She is a beautiful, beautiful young woman wearing a red and yellow costume with a sort of flame motif going on in the cape. The cape looks like it's been burned all along the edges with a bright yellow cape. She's beautiful and blonde and buxom and sexy and hot. And I know I'm saying all these things, folks, and I'm probably offending people. However, in the entry itself, it repeatedly describes her as beautiful. And it says, uh, let's see, when Betty Kane, that's her name, enters the tennis court and stands, uh, the stands always echo with wolf whistles, cheers, and other expressions of admiration. Blonde, blue-eyed, and beautiful. So... There you go. Not did my you, fault. Did folks. you write this entry? <laughs> no, the word hot is not in here. Okay. Uh, so you know that's not me. So, interesting character. So, do you know the, the real history behind this character, Rob? Well, Nightwing, and, there's part of Nightwing and Flamebird, the, char- the superhero characters from the Bottle City of Candor. Correct. That, that is where this name came from, was uh, as Dick Grayson became Nightwing, 
and and well, let me step up, step back a step. This is Betty Kane, who in pre-crisis history was the original Batgirl, Bat hyphen girl, and she wasn't around a tremendous amount of time. But ultimately, she was kind of considered the Earth Two Batgirl, if I remember correctly. Right, she had the red and green costume. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well. When you get past Crisis, you can't have that Batgirl around. you got to get rid of her. So they decided, wouldn't it be fun to keep the girl still around and give her a name? Uh, because Batgirl was romantically linked with Robin, just, or at least attempted or whatever. There was, there was some stuff there. So they thought, wouldn't it be fun to link her with Nightwing by, just as Rob suggested, the Candor name of uh, Flamebird and put those two names together? And actually, it works really, really well. I, it was very clever, whoever came up with that idea. So, um, now... Just, by the way, in my own defense, and, and I heard the guys talking about this on that Teen Titans episode, her being drawn really hot. She's out of high school here, folks, so she's, she's older than 18. But they made a great point that DC never shied away from sexualizing their Teen Titan characters. If you think back to Wonder Girl, when she was even when she was just young and, and Nick Carty was drawing her, when she changed costumes, probably still 16 or something, they were drawing them way further advanced than they should have been. And that's an interesting thing, considering how... Um, how conservative DC usually is with stuff like that, that they would draw their teen characters that way. Food for thought. Anyway, so let's see. So Flamebird, uh, Betty Kane, was a, check this out, she was a pro tennis player, she was an aerobics instructor, she was a beauty pageant winner, an Olympic gymnast, and a swimmer. Now this is all the post-crisis origin, by the way. So she was incredibly accomplished, she was gorgeous, the world was her oyster. So by the time she was about 16, she was kind of bored. There was no, she didn't feel there were any challenges left in life. Oh, wah. I know, such a hard life. So, but, so where did she find her next challenge in? She decided to sink her hooks into Robin, the boy wonder. She thought she would want, she, a good challenge would be to try to win his heart. So that's where the flame bird costume comes in. You know, Robin's a bird, flame bird. She, she designed it with reds and yellows, sort of like his. So she sort of tried to come up with a female compliment to him to go out there and be a hero and get his attention. Well, she didn't really have any luck. He, he didn't really notice her. So after high school, she, um, she, so she, put the, she put the costume away, continued her activities of being apparently perfect at everything. Then after high school, she resumed being Flamebird again. She did get to meet Robin, but there weren't any sparks. Nothing happened. So she sort of became what you would call a fangirl of Robin. And they became a running gag throughout a few stories where she was always you know, hung up on him. She eventually became a founding member of the Titans West. Uh, and... Uh, that's really kind of all of her history. And she's out there doing stuff nowadays. So at the point, this drawing, Chris Franklin, when he was on the Super, um, sorry, Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast, when he was on the Secret Origins episode, he made note, and I didn't catch it till now, but that this drawing is supposed to look like Elizabeth Shue from Adventures in Babysitting. I, and think I can see that. Yeah. And Chris says he's an expert because he has a crush on Elizabeth Shue. And to be frank, who, who didn't have a crush on Elizabeth Shue in the 80s? I mean, come on. It's beautiful. So. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, I mean, geez, I, I can imagine DC was like, George, you sure you want to do this? You know, like this kind of zero character. And it, no, he's <laughs> like, no, 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 I want to do it. I mean, it looks terrific. It's George Perez doing a Teen Titans character. The the entry is great. All her, I mean, the, the different action poses she's got and the, the tennis thing and then the karate and then the fashion model. Those remind like, I feel like they're like you see on the side of like a Barbie doll. Yeah, you know, where it's like all the different, you know, your doll can do the buy tennis flame bird, buy karate flame bird. It's the whole <laughs> flame bird line of toys. So it's a great listing. I mean, this character to me is pretty much a zero, but Perez gives it such life, you know, that you can't help but look at it and go, boy, this is really, really well done. Especially again when you can, you know, look at the rest of them. Like he really, he really brought some excitement to a bunch of morts. 
<laughs> to be honest with you. Well, be, being her history as Batgirl, I feel like she's a little more important than that. Uh, and and they, they she, she did become kind of a one-note character, where it was pretty much her just fangirling over Robin. But I always liked her. Maybe it was because the the other, the loose-leaf who's who entry of her that you'll see in a few months or years or whatever uh, is done by Kevin McGuire. It's also another gorgeous piece, and she's just sexy as hell in that one, too. So uh, for some reason, this character, and, and maybe it's also the Nightwing and Flamebird. I love the idea they brought the Candor names back. For some reason, this character speaks to me a lot more than the Batgirl identity of her ever did. So I like it. Now, another reason Perez would have drawn these was because the annual these were published in, he wrote that thing. And it was basically a love letter to Titan's history. And if you listen to the Secret Origins episode, you'll hear the guys just go through it. And it's, wow, it's a lot. It, Perez really crammed a lot in there. So him drawing the entries in the back sort of makes sense. All right, move on to the next one. The next one is Golden Eagle, another Perez drawing. And this guy looks awesome. He's flying at you. He's got the, he's got the look like metal wings. They're supposed to look like bird wings, like Hawkman's wings kind of sort of, but they're metal. He's got the yellow mask. He's got the yellow chest plate and the white pants. And if you've ever seen Golden Eagle's uniform before, he always looks like a mort, like Rob puts it. Here, it looks pretty awesome. Apparently, this costume wasn't really used very much either. But in the background, you can see him surfing, the guy out of his costume surfing, and he's got that surfer look in the front. You know, as who's who usually does, you get the surf print with the one color and the, the guy's face in the foreground without the mask. So you see Mr. Surfer guy there, Mr. Charlie Parker. And the gist here is, what you've got is a Hawkman, basically, team character, who has, without, who has absolutely no connection to Hawkman whatsoever. It's kind of funny that they came up with a teen character for Hawkman without any any loose threads, any connection, nothing. But uh, Charlie Parker went out there, decided to become a hero, and he decided he was initially going to charge money for doing heroic activities. Well, that didn't really work out for him. So he decided, in other words, to just to try and go the hero route. Ended up hooking up with the Titans, um, Titans West specifically. I do love that they, they make points of talking about he's in Malibu, California. He's a surfer dude. His occupation is uh, restaurant employee, but later on here, somewhere along the lines, he says he is chronically unemployed. <laughs> this essentially does take pains to dump on him because it mentions yeah. that he's the the checker at the Chicken Little's Fried Chicken franchise. How long this job will last is anyone's guess. Right, and they talk about his get-rich schemes and all these things, so they don't really paint a very nice picture of Charlie Parker, but it's a great, it's a beautiful-looking entry. I can't fault the art, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with this costume at all. I know him from his other costume, Mm -hmm. Uh, Because he first appeared in Justice League, as this mentions. And his original costume is just dorkerific. This one is a little too complicated, but at least looks a little cooler. But I've literally never seen this costume outside of the century. There's a good chance it never appeared again. Um, I think the guys actually talk about it again in The Secret Origins. uh, But I I don't remember specifically. But And of course it's complicated. It's a Perez costume in the 80s. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to keep you awake there. Like you're forcing your way through through the yawn there. Um, next up is Bumblebee. Interesting character, not to be confused with the Transformers. This is Karen Beecher Duncan. So this is the wife of Mal Duncan. Another Perez drawing, obviously. Now, she, uh, she fell in love with Mal, and she helped him design his Gabriel's horn. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. They ended up becoming married, and, and she actually took on the idea of Bumblebee. It's sort of a crazy story. She didn't feel like they were taking Mal seriously enough on the Teen Titans. So she creates a costume identity to go and attack the Teen Titans to give Mal a chance 
to shine and prove how awesome he is. But what ends up happening instead is the Titans all jump in to defend Mal, and she's sort of like awed at like, wow, these guys really care about him, and they really stood up, stepped up to his defense. And so she backs off, and and the Titans. It took a long, long time for them to ever find out she was the bumblebee who attacked. Which, quite frankly, if I if my girlfriend did this, I don't know if I'd be happy or not. It's it, it's kind of a tough situation to be in there. But she she quits being Bumblebee after a while, uh, becomes a freelance writer, and um, now according to the guys uh, over on the Secret Origins podcast again, and I, and I'm, I keep mentioning that for a reason. I got some, I solicited some additional feedback for some of these entries ahead of time, and for these I'm using the Secret Origins, and the others you'll get to it a bit. You'll see what I'm talking about. But it, it's interesting to note Bumblebee. I mean, this character didn't have a very long life, right? I mean, as far as shelf life, didn't appear in a lot of comics. She sort of vanished. Pretty quickly. However, she's had an ongoing heroic life since then, especially in recent years. She's become a quite popular character. She was appeared in the Teen Titans cartoon, and apparently that was at the suggestion of George Perez because he's always liked the character. She is now part of the DC Superhero Girls line of toys. I don't know if you've, you've heard about this line from Target. Have oh, we yeah, talked about this? Yeah, no, no, but I mean I was going to mention that actually because the other day I was in Target. And they have like an end cap display for this mm-hmm. line, and Bumblebee is in is is like part of like the little cardboard display. Yeah. And I remember catching myself thinking, I'm looking at a D level DC superhero and is now part of a major merchandising line. Like, yeah, wow, exactly. how things have changed. And it, and it, and I've talked about this on various shows. I don't know if I've talked about it on Who's Who or not, but the the DC superhero girls superhero girls line that these target action figures now they've got young adult novels. They've got some comic books that are coming out. They just they gave away some freeway com, free giveaway comics recently. They've got uh, an animated short coming. Um, they DC estimates the potential value of the DC superhero line is a billion dollar product line. That blows mm-hmm. my mind. And the sad part of that is that the comic is coming last. Of Everything course, else came well, before course, the comic. Right, yeah. And that kind of sad considering its origins. But anyway, to have Bumblebee part of that line, that's huge. I mean, whereas we, I, I could have very easily gone through life without ever thinking about this character again. Yet my daughter now will probably know who Bumblebee is for the rest of her life. So she also, <laughs> she also appeared in the Young Justice cartoon, by the way, too. So bizarre how she's taken a life of her own just recently. This is one of those characters that, when drawn normally by kind of a quote-unquote normal comic book artist, I think just looks ridiculous. But when Perez does it, she looks great. I mean, looks – I don't know if I would say badass because the name Bumblebee just is not threatening. Uh, of course, <laughs> Yellow Jacket was taken. Uh, although Hornet might have been kind of cool or whatever. But anyway, I think this is a great entry, and I love the color scheme, just the black and yellow. I think that's a nice combination. But I said when drawn, drawn by Perez, it just looks – it looks great. I, I yeah. think she looks – like a viable, you know, she doesn't look like a D-level character, which is, of course, what I'm assigning her. But, I mean, she looks, she, I think she looks great here. Just super. And I should have talked more about the art. Yes, in the background you can see uh, also a close-up of Karen's face. And you can see this great little shot in the surprint of Bumblebee floating in the air. And she's got, because uh, uh, her powers come from brain impulses, she's doing like some sort of mental blast and blasting the crap out of some punks. I mean, it just looks painful how, how, big, how powerful that blast is because Perez is just awesome. So, impressive. All right. Up next, the Herald. And so this is uh, this is Mal Duncan. 
and he's wearing his blue and white costume. It's, it's got a hood, or a hoodie, if you will, and a small little blue cape. It's got uh, white piping, and the body of it's blue. And it's a pretty decent-looking costume. Now, if, if you don't know Mal, you probably – well, I would assume you've heard of him. I have, so that means somebody must have heard of him. Anyway, he went through a lot of different superhero identities in pre-crisis. All of that's been wiped away by the point time we get to 1989. However, it's worth noting, besides going by the Herald, he also went by, the, by Guardian, the Hornblower, and later Vox. So he's changed his identity quite a few times. And for a long time, he was just Mal Duncan. In fact, he joined the Teen Titans. Now, again, this is post-crisis we're going to talk about. He joined the Teen Titans during an era when the Titans weren't using their superpowers at all. And uh, according to this entry, he was fighting a, a group of thugs who picked a fight with his sister. And, because they're these racist thugs. And he picked a fight with them. Or not picked a fight, but he was, he was defending his sister. And the Titans saw this. And they saw Mal getting overwhelmed. So the Titans jumped in to help him. Now... Again, crediting the Secret Origins podcast, specifically Nathaniel Hubbard, he made a good point of saying this origin is backwards. In the original origin, it was the other way around. The Titans were fighting the punks, and Mal jumped in and helped them, which really would have asserted him as a better, stronger character. But instead, the way this is written, it makes him a little less impressive, which is kind of sad. And, and, and Nathaniel went on to say that kind of DC's always dumped on this character. In fact, if anything, he said, if anything, his most identifiable trait is self-doubt. Apparently, Mal questions whether he deserves to be part of the Titans, and then by the end of the story, he, you know, he's reaffirmed, and he feels like he's ready to be a member. And then the next time Mal gets a focus, he's unsure of whether he's worthy of being a Titan, and by the end of that story, he gets reaffirmed. So it just keeps happening to Mal over and over, which is sad. So, anyway, he joins the Titans when they don't have powers. Eventually, they go back to using their superpowers, and, oh, lo and behold, he doesn't feel worthy. So, what he does is he whips up this thing called the Gabriel's Horn. Him and Bumblebee build this thing together. It's a device which opens portals, which uh, is sort of like a, a warping technology. And he uses that to uh, help join the Titans and becomes an active member and a valued member of the team. Now... Again, pre-crisis, he gets the horn a whole different way. Not going to get into all that. Supposedly has something to do with the jazz competition and club. I don't know. But after retcon, after retcon, after retcon, after retcon, what you get to in this is that he had to give up using Gabriel's horn because it was actually helping two villains called the Antithesis and the Gargoyle, and that's why he quit using the Gabriel's horn. But beautiful entry. As I said, you, talk, you see the Herald in the front. In the background, you see him sitting there with his trumpet, because he likes to play jazz. You see the schematics of Gabriel's horn, and then you see him blasting Dr. Light, and you can see the titans around him. It's like, it looks like a warp field or something's opening around them. Really impressive artwork. And these don't... Now, get, don't I mean, here, by the way, the first appearances have returned, and the powers and weapons section has returned. These feel like classic Who's Who entries to me. How about you? Yeah, yeah, they, they look it. Well, the entries themselves make me happy, though, because we're getting sort of minor characters. So, And by the way, out of all these Titans characters, this is the one who deserves, deserves the most talking about, probably, anyway, because he was actually a genuine Titan for a while there. Yeah, he all was right. involved with the team for a long time. Yep. So, all right, up next, it's a two-page entry split across uh, was it, horizontally. The top half is the antithesis. The bottom half is the gargoyle. Uh, fairly quickly, the, the antithesis is this malevolent entity that it, apparently in some untold tale, he got trapped in the Justice League of America computer and he somehow got out and then was forcing the JLA to commit super crimes. And the Teen Titans got involved and stopped their protege or their, uh, I guess their, their mentors. The interesting thing about this is this is actually a retcon. He first appeared in Teen Titans, the first series, number 53. This is a retcon, I want to say done by Bob Rosakis, to basically be the, the adventure that shows the formation of the Teen Titans. 
because when the Teen Titans first appeared in Brave and the Bold all those years ago, they, they showed up and they teamed up without calling themselves the Teen Titans. Then the next time they appeared, they were already the Teen Titans. So if you look at that, there's a story in between where they eventually decided to call themselves Teen Titans. So I think it was Bob Rosak, if I remember right, wrote this story about the antithesis to sort of slot that in there. So that's why the antithesis is sort of matters, is that he was retroactively the bad guy that they fought to become the Teen Titans. Then on the other half of the page is Gargoyle, who is also tied in with the antithesis. Gargoyle is also goes by another name called Mr. Twister, which see, to me, he's, he's more well-known as Mr. Twister, but anyway. And he apparently, as Mr. Twister, freed the antithesis, and then he got all these powers, and later on, the antithesis transformed him into the gargoyle. It's very complicated. But at this point, uh, both of these are in here because they both appeared in this particular annual. They were both trapped in limbo. Both were trying to come out of limbo. And Mr. Twister, or in this case, gargoyle, is also famous because he actually was in the very first Titans adventure, which was Brave and the Bold number 54, the one where you had Kid Flash and Robin and, um, who am I forgetting? Somebody. Uh, the other Teen Titans. Thank you. Without Wonder Girl, because she joined later. So this was this would be the first time they all got together. And just to give you some perspective, Antithesis only ever appeared once prior to this annual, and uh, Mr. Twister slash Gargoyle only ever appeared twice prior to this annual. All right. Okay. Oof. For more information on these Teen Titans characters, please check out the Teen Titans Wasteland podcast, which covers the original or classic run of the Teen Titans, not the George Press stuff, but prior to that. And then also check out our buddy Tom Panarese's podcast, Pop Culture Affidavit, where they touch on, and blog, where they touch on a lot of Titan stuff. All right, Rob. I guess we're going to move on now to Action Comics Annual Number 2, mm-hmm. publication date April 11th, 1989. Only two entries. This is, uh, this, this is Michael Bailey pointed this out to me. This is a crime. The, the Batman got two annuals across Batman and Detective, has tons of entries for all the classic Batman characters and villains. Superman, two entries, that's it. Nothing else. And it's, and it's not even characters that you necessarily want to write home about. So, kind of shocking. Well, this was Batman at the apex of his popularity. It is 1989. It is the year of the bat. So, yeah. okay. Our first entry is Matrix. Now, if you don't know your 80s history, Matrix was the Supergirl that we all knew in the 80s, or more like the 90s, really. And uh, just to give you the, I'll run through this fairly quickly. We see the image is drawn by Dan Jurgens of Brett Breeding. In the foreground, you have, quite frankly, sort of an unattractive female, a specific, purposely drawn to be unattractive. She's got short cropped hair. Her face looks almost skeletal. She's wearing uh, a tank top. This is Smallville and jeans. She's just plain clothes standing there. But in the background, in the surprint, you see Supergirl, from that era, you see, uh, I guess that's Lex Luthor with a full head of hair. You see the Supergirl entity transforming into Super, into, into Clark Kent, and you see Clark Kent holding her. So it's a lot of little imagery from her storyline. And the gist of it is, there is, at this point in time, there is a pocket universe that the Time Trapper created because of the Legion of Superheroes and to, to have another version of Superboy. It's all post-crisis, folks. You just got to roll with it. So there's a post-crisis Superboy in the pocket universe, and... In that universe, John Byrne decided he wanted to play in that sort of sandbox when he was doing the Superman series. So in that pocket universe, Superboy dies. And General Zod and his, his cronies come from the Phantom Zone, and they start subjugating the Earth and slaughtering everybody. Well, Lex Luthor, it turns out to become a resistance leader on Earth because he can't stand to have his planet destroyed. And then when Lana, La- when Lana Lang dies, Lex Luthor's upset because at this point, remember, it's the Superboy era, so both Lex and Clark Kent existed in, in Smallville, so Lex would have known Lana Lang, not just from the Smallville TV show. Anyway, so he recreates 
a duplicate of Lana Lang from what they call proto-matter. She has superpowers, and she takes the identity of Supergirl and helps Lex Luthor's resistance against Zod. So she is sent to the quote-unquote real universe, you know, basically the post-crisis universe. She's sent there to recruit Superman for help. So she gets Superman, they return to their universe, and it turns out while they were gone, Zod and his allies have killed pretty much everyone on Earth. Everyone's dead. And they blast Supergirl with a bunch of heat vision, really injure her, and eventually, I love how it says here, super, it says in quotes, um, after defeating the three Kryptonian criminals, Superman brought the former Supergirl back to his own Earth. By the way, folks, that's a nice way of saying, after Superman murdered the three Kryptonian criminals. That's just nice that they kind of left that point out. Anyway, so he brings the the, the injured Supergirl to Earth, uh, our Earth, and then he brings her to Smallville. And Ma and Pa Kent actually take over fostering her. And she's been so injured in this attack that it's actually, her, she looks like that I described, sort of that emaciated, un, sorry, I'm not trying to be mean when I say unattractive. It's not my Shag's usual sexist comments. I mean, she's, she's drawn to look unattractive. Anyway, she's got that body, and her brain is at the level of a small child. And they call her May. Uh, he was never able to track with this this whole thing of Supergirl. I've never read it. I'm not familiar with it at all. Nothing about this particularly makes me interested in it. I, I mean, <laughs> the artwork is nice. Dan Jurgens and Brett Breeding always a nice combo. And, you know, I'm sure Ange is probably very mad at me for saying anything. I don't even say anything bad. I don't think this is – like I don't have anything against this version of Supergirl. I just never read it. So I just I saw this entry. I was like, uh, okay. And I wondered why there's no period at the end of the last sentence of the history. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think this entry is going to get anyone to want to read more about it, to no, quite frankly. No. But now, uh, in anticipation of this episode, I went ahead and reached out to some folks. I, I went to some you know, content experts, if you will. And this being a superhero, Supergirl character, I reached out to Ange, actually. Our buddy Ange, who runs the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary. He's also part of the Legion of Super Bloggers and a frequent guest on the Secret Origins podcast. And I asked Ange to take a look at this entry and give me some points that are worth talking about in here. So I'm going to be reading some – he wrote me a, a pretty decent-sized piece, so I'm going to be reading bits and pieces of it. Basically what he said was, this was a pretty dark time for Supergirl fans. And the sad part is that there's only a small part of this whole thing, the, this whole entry that's Supergirl, and once again – She's gone from the DC Universe. There's no Supergirl. Now, the original Kara had only been gone for a few years, and we got teased a bit with this Matrix Supergirl. But then when she gets fried by General Zod, she's reverted to this sort of proto-humanoid. So that's probably the best way to describe her. Rather than I was saying she's ugly, proto-humanoid is probably the best way to say. And, it, and um, Angie goes on to say that this annual that we're reading from took place during the Superman exile period. And what we'll note in the Serpent is her morphing into Clark Kent. And then he says, this is key to the character's arc because when Clark returns from his exile, he finds out that Matrix has actually replaced him as both Clark and Superman. So she was on Earth pretending to be him. The two have a big brawl over who should be Superman. Matrix has gone somewhat mad. And the story ends with Matrix in the form of Superman flying off into space. So even the tease of Supergirl has become like a mockery. It's an insane protoplasm creature roaming the universe. And this part's funny. Ange goes, but guess what? It got worse. Because the next time we see her, back in the form of Supergirl, is in the Panicking in the Sky, which is a great storyline, by the way. We see her in Panic in the Sky, where she's become a pawn of Brainiac. Once she's freed com from control, she becomes a submissive girlfriend to Lex Luthor. So he recaps. She appears in as a Supergirl, becomes a protoplasmic childlike Matrix, goes mad, replaces Superman, wanders space, becomes a slave of Brainiac, becomes a dupe of Luthor. Not exactly a great timeline for Supergirl fans, uh, who are still smarting from her death in crisis. Luckily, death of Superman and funeral for a friend, which 
I don't think anyone's ever said luckily right before those sentences. But anyway, luckily in Death of, of Superman, a funeral for the friend, funeral for a friend, she sort of finds herself and starts the heroic journey. Oh, man, that's tough. That is tough. Feel bad for him. And it really, I, I had a hard time, and it wasn't until those Death of Superman stories that I really started connecting with the Supergirl character. And it, this is my opinion now. I think they probably would have been better off transform her back into Supergirl, just drop the protoplasm story and say, yep, she used to do that, and just move forward with her as Supergirl. would have been the smart thing to do. But I do remember when she was Lex Luthor, she would like transform into other girls for Lex's sexual pleasure and stuff. That's crazy. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> Neat. Okay. Next entry is Cat Grant. You might know her from the Supergirl TV series. However, back then she was a supporting character in the Superman books, ladies and gentlemen. And in the story here, it describes her as a gossip columnist uh, talking about Hollywood celebrities. And it, I'm just going to put it out there. The text does not paint a pretty picture, folks. It basically describes her as a loose woman who's, quote, involved with numerous men. And I don't mean to judge her for that, but the text is written in such a way to make her sound that way purposefully. They talk about all these different boyfriends she had. And so she talks about she was romantically linked at one point with Clark Kent, with Jimmy Olsen, Morgan Edge. Uh, they use, you know, anyway, it, it, you've read it, Rob, so I think you can back me up. I'm not being sexist when I say all this. It's, it's pretty blatant. Did I read this? <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Uh, art is by Dan Jurgens of Brett Breeding. It's okay. Uh, it has her in the foreground in a appears to be like lime green suit and then in the background you see her uh when superman is burst in to, to help her then you see her on a, a like her with morgan edge they're about to get freaky i mean there is some sexual tension there she's kind of looks like she's unbuttoning his jacket they're embraced she's giving him bedroom eyes he's got a cigarette on a stick dangling you know one of those little uh whatever you i don't know what you call that little extenders on the cigarettes he's got one of those you know and he, he's looking at her alluringly. I don't know if he's going to kiss her with a cigarette in his mouth or not. But then on the other side of that, you've got Clark very, very forcefully, not forcefully, but very purposefully friend-zoning Cat Grant, keeping her from uh, doing anything. He's kissing her on the head, on, on the hair, which implies we're just friends. That's all. She does have a son named Adam, like she does in the TV series, and there was a, eventually a custody battle for that son. Uh, and uh, I think the most important thing to walk away with is knowing that in Lois and Clark, she's play played by the insanely hot Tracy Scoggins. I mean, I think that's really what you need to know about this character. Moving on, we're going to go on to Batman Annual Number 13, cover dated also April 11th, 1989, courtesy of Mike's Amazing World DC Comics. Rob, take it away. Yes, this is Batman drawn by someone of which I, whose identity is unknown to me because it does Art not. Art T. Bear. Is that Art T. Bear? Is it really? Yeah. Where does look it at the signature? Well, it just says AT. I don't know necessarily what that could be. Anybody. When it's drawn like that, it's Art T. Bear. Okay. Uh, I gotta say, I think this is butt ugly. Uh, I think Batman looks like a monster. Uh, He's roided out, definitely. He is roided out. He just looks, I, I just, to me, he does not look heroic. To me, if you did not know this was Batman, you would think this is a villain. He He's frowning in both pictures. Uh, I just, I, I think R.T. Bear is a perfectly fine artist, but this, this one just does nothing for me at all. Luckily, uh, there is something much nicer. On the other page, for some reason, I guess they had some extra space, and maybe they had this laying around. I have no idea, but they sprung for sprang, and that's that they've got a two-thirds page of Batman drawn by Dick Sprang for no good reason, which is perfectly fine because I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. I love Dick Sprang. I always have. I think he's one of he's one of my all-time favorite Batman artists, and I just love that they did this old-timey Batman thing. And it's him and Robin looking like a 1940s Batman. It almost looks a little like the um, 
the uh, the opening sequence of the Batman TV show. We see the Batman cave, the classic Batman, the Batmobile, basically the 40s version, him punching the Joker. It's terrific. I absolutely love it. I love it. I wish they had done more of this. I would have been like, how cool would it have been to get like a whole, whole who's who of like the Batman villains as done by Dick Sprang. It would have been so cool. Well, I love that you get the current artistry of R.T. Bear and you get the old artistry of Dick Strang both together. And, it, and on facing pages, this would look great. Now, it, if I recall correctly, Dick Sprang actually did come back and draw like a three-issue storyline. He did. He did. They did like a prestige miniseries. I think it was about Two Face. Um, uh, I read it. Well, the, the, one, the one I'm thinking of was embedded in the monthly. It there was, was there in was one that was a separate one, I think. Well, what I, all right, well, I'll tell you what I'm thinking of, and you can just hush now. Thank you. Uh, it was embedded in either Batman or Detective, and it was like it was supposed to be a weird, either a hallucination or a parallel world or, or something. It was they explained why everything looks so weird in the story using uh, not just having Dick Strang draw a story, and because I remember reading it because I was new to Batman at this time, it was right around the Batman movie, and I was like, "What is this crap?" I didn't like it because I was stupid back then. And I remember quite vividly, I'd, maybe he did do a prestige mini, but I just even recall him doing a run in the series itself as well. But it, the point is, they had a relationship with Dick Sprang around this time, having him draw some stuff. So maybe they just said, hey, can you do a half, you know, two-thirds page for us real quick? And he, and he knocked this out, because it looks great. It absolutely does. I love, it's also, you get the old Batman logo, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then on the other page, you get the current Batman logo. It's nice. It's a nice combination. Now, in the entry, they do talk about Leslie Tompkins, which I think is – I think that might have made it into one of the previous updates. Yeah, it did because that, that's, your, that's your two stuff. Yeah. I don't really know of what here is new, really. I mean it gets into the outsiders, and but all that stuff was covered. So I, I think it was just like let's just do another Batman entry because people never tire looking at this stuff. Well, I'm glad you asked because I saw advanced feedback on one of my friends who's a Batman expert. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast, the Power Records podcast, and a frequent guest on the Secret Origins podcast. And he says the Batman entry text is nearly identical to the entry in Update 87. The only real change is specifying that Bruce met Dick in the third year as Batman and that the Joker murdered Jason. So, uh-huh. Okay. Yep. All right. Now, I will note here also, um, I, I, check, I checked the timing of all this. So, yes, this is published after Batman Year One and Batman Year Two. Now, Batman Year Three is actually two months away from publication, which might explain why they have so many details in this entry and the Robin entry about Dick Grayson and the way he becomes Robin, because they probably already had that plotted out at this point. So that's why they, they felt comfortable putting it in there. And uh, for those of you who are big Man-Bat fans out there, sorry, folks, they specifically say the bat that came through the window that Batman faced is apparently the one that scared him when he was a child, not one that was misdirected by uh, Kirk Langstrom. Terribly, terribly sorry, folks. Thank God for that. (laughs) It's completely (laughs) unnecessary. And it still blows my mind, and I probably need to talk about this more on my JLI podcast. The Justice League International Bwahaha podcast, also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. But it sort of blows my mind that at this point in history, Batman was a member of the, the Bwahaha Justice League and the Outsiders at the same time. Because if you read the Justice League International, you would never even get a hint that he was a part of another team at this point. There's nothing about the Outsiders anywhere. And so uh, it just blows my mind that he's on both teams. I wonder why it, when it mentions uh, D.A. Harvey Dent, it has Two-Face in all caps. Hmm. The only, um, the only villain that gets that. That's weird. I don't know. Maybe it's an ang- maybe it's an anagram or an acronym. I don't know. It's very strange. But anyway, I don't care. The Dick Sprang. It's worth it for the Dick Sprang drawing alone. I just Ooh. love that. I just completely. I've I've always loved that guy's artwork. So it's tremendous. Uh, so next up is Robin. This is the Dick Grace 
Good Grayson Robin, joined by Rick Stassi and Sam De La Rosa. Um, it's it's not bad. Uh, it's very cartoony. Not that that's not really a bad thing. The Serpent has got a lot going on. We see Batman and Robin. We see him uh, with his like I guess I don't know what he's in front of. Like a, I guess in front of a computer. Is that yes. what he's in front of? It's okay. a computer. You can see right. the keyboard. His fingers. Oh, right. that's right. Okay, but that. that Okay, that's a weird. It looks like the microwave oven that he's. Yeah, it's, it, the monitor looks very weird. Yeah, uh, and there he is as a uh, Nightwing. So, and he's got a batarang and he's got a rope. So, uh, yeah, that's not bad. It's not a bad entry. It's a, it's kind of a unique style. It's it's very heavily inked. It's got a lot of uh, texture going on, but it's it's neat. I got. I don't really know. Why. I guess it's like Batman. He doesn't really need another entry, but why not? Well, it's interesting that they do a Robin entry. Oh, I know why they did a Robin entry. I can say, but not a Nightwing entry. They did this because, again, they're two months out from Batman Year 3. That's why this is so important to put this in here. That's got to be it. Now, I reached out, again, to another expert on this area. I reached out to Tom Panarese, who's an expert on Robin. He had a podcast going for a long time called Taking Flight, which you can still find, by the way. Absolutely love that podcast, a Robin-based podcast. He does also his pop culture affidavit, does In Country, which is the non-podcast. And he's also a frequent guest on the Secret Origins podcast. I'm starting to notice a trend here about the Secret Origins podcast. I think Ryan's pilfering all our folks. But anyway, now, I asked him specifically about the Robin entries, and here's what he had to say. He likes how Nightwing is in the foreground on the bottom of Dick's entry, because uh, and that Batman. Oh, that's that's on the next one we're going to get to. But that Batman's holding Jason's body in the next one is in the foreground. That they sort of paralleled the Nightwing and the Jason Todd. The current events, the most current event in the Robin story arc, is in the foreground, even though it's part of the Serpent. Like Nightwing's the most recent piece of this, so he's he's the most forward, but he's still in black and white or single color. And he says, uh, on the Dick Grayson piece, the text is pretty straightforward, and he's glad they don't get too heavy into the Nightwing part of Dick's life, especially uh, since there's circumstances surrounding Nightwing that did change in post-crisis. The, and the Titan stories did not. Like, you know, when the way Robin left Batman pre-crisis is one way, and the way they did it post-crisis was very different. So uh, Tom goes on to say he never liked the whole idea, post-crisis idea, that Batman fires Robin as an aspect of Dick's post-crisis Nightwing origin. And he's always appreciated the fact that since Detective Comics number 38, Robin's origin has pretty much not changed. So uh, I felt like, for me, that there was sort of like they were trying to serve two masters here when they talk about why Dick Grayson stopped being Robin. They talk about how he felt like his ideals were changing from Batman's. They didn't have the same motivations anymore. And then he talks about the danger where Batman fired him for. So I felt like they were sort of trying to serve both the, the pre-crisis origin that, of Nightwing that Marv Wolfman did in the New Teen Titans and the post-crisis version where Batman fires him. Okay, I see that. Yep. All right. Next up is the other Robin. This is Jason Todd. Uh, this annoys me a little because it says his first appearance is Batman number 408 when it isn't. It's Detective Comics 526. I mean, I know uh, that oh. I know that this version is Batman 408, but I don't know. The, the first guy to be called Robin that was Jason Todd was Detective Comics 526, so just stop it. Anyway, this <laughs> is, again, drawn by Rick Stasi and Sam De La Rosa. We see him in his little uh, Shia LaBeouf punk outfit from the Transformers movies. He's the bad signal. We see him kicking somebody that maybe is Penguin. I, I think so. Maybe. I don't know. I can't quite tell from his face. And then we see the close-up of Batman holding his, unfortunately not forever, dead corpse uh, as he's crying <laughs> into the heavens. So, uh, I, yeah. I, hey, I called to have this kid killed. I did it. I was one of them. I called to have him knocked off. So, uh, yeah, this is the second Jason Todd Robin. And, you know, they really did stack the deck against this Robin because the version that first appeared in Batman 408 was a complete dickwad. The version that was before that was not bad, but they were like, really angled. They wanted you to, to want him to be killed because they wrote him as just like a total jerk. So, 
you know, I, I wasn't terribly sorry when he when he got bumped off because I just thought, eh, this didn't really work. Now, see, I think there's some Batman experts that are going to disagree with you there because a lot, I've, I've read a lot of people say that he wasn't written as a real jerk until you get to Death in the Family. Like, he was always a little bit of a rebellious punk, but it wasn't until Death in the Family where you're like, God, I hate this kid. So that's, that's some people's take. And we'll learn more about that in coming months as some other people maybe do some stuff with Batman. But a um, couple, couple different thoughts here from uh, Tom Paneris again. And it's funny. He's going he's gonna to talk about you right now uh, without you even knowing it. Tom says, I know this version of Jason isn't well-liked, but I have to give Jim Starling credit for making me care about his death instead of celebrating his death, which is probably what most people who called the 1-900 number did to kill him off. There you go. <laughs> uh, Tom goes on to say Because in my mind The origin doesn't work In the context of Dick Having been fired Now let's say that Dick's pre-crisis Nightwing origin Stayed intact And he grew out of the role And then Bruce got all Bat butt hurt about it Then made a rash decision To literally pluck Jason Off the streets And make him a new Robin Would make total sense Jason was better dead Than alive Because of the way Starlin and then Marf Wolfman Would have Batman Blame himself For what he sees As his greatest mistake And channel his anger In self-destructive ways Which is a path That both Dick and Tim Drake Eventually rescue Bruce Wayne from That's interesting That uh, you know Talking about how Jason's death Was actually beneficial To the storyline Because it brought Batman To that point of The, the self-destructive point That's interesting so I appreciate it. Thank you for that expertise, Tom. By the way, if you want more on Robin, or really any of these Batman characters, you should be checking out the Batman universe. It's got tons of uh, Batman-related podcasts, all very, very good. I already mentioned the Taking Flight podcast. There's another one which focuses specifically on Tim Drake, which is a Robin podcast called Everyone Loves the Drake. Also worth checking out. Okay. Next up is Alfred Pennyworth, uh, drawn by Joe James. No idea who that is. And Dennis Rodier. Uh, I think I've heard him, him before, but I'm pretty much unfamiliar uh, with these guys. In terms of the art, we see him, we see Alfred there holding the Batman costume uh, as it's ready to go. I don't, I'm not, not sure about the physics of that whole thing because I think there needs to be some shoulder pads in there. But all right, whatever, it doesn't matter. Well, uh, but I, I love the sort of Butler pose, though. It's a very yes, butler he's doing pose a Butler pose. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. But instead of it like being a, a tablecloth or I mean, a, right. a, a little rag that you open the bottle of wine with, it's the cloak, right. which is great. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, this is another entry that really isn't needed, but as you mentioned earlier, this was really just to give everybody a basic, you know, it's like a Batman primer. I guess they're assuming that some of these people were unfamiliar, so why not do this little history of some of the characters? Because as far as I know, again, there's no real new information here. There's one key, and this again comes from our buddy Chris Franklin, um, there's one key piece that's not here. Well, it doesn't mention him being the outsider. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) All the crap of the outsider is finally out of here. Which is nice, because that was just totally insane. I can't, still can't believe they had it in the Update 88 version. That's just nuts. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, they, they even have a powers and weapons section here, and it doesn't mention anything, anything about it. Yep. I like this Joe James image. You know, I, I think Alfred looks great in the foreground. I think the, I, I think the whole thing, the, the, the way they drew the manor, uh, Wayne Manor with the stalactites underneath it, so you, so you see the cave underneath it. I think that's just really well done. I, I dig this. And it talks about in here how... how Alfred functions as basically his tech support. And this is before they introduced Harold, which I always thought was a great addition to the series. Harold as their, you know, Quasimodo-like tech guy. But having Alfred, you know, be the guy who could fix everything back then is sort of ludicrous. But what the heck, you just go with it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and we see him using, a, I guess it's a back computer, and he's talking to Mr. Bruce or whatever. And then we see him bandaging up, bandaging up, bandaging up. Batman, looking kind of like the Earth 2 Batman with that tiny little bat symbol on his chest. It's sort of interesting there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's okay. It's, you know, it's certainly deserving of a listing. 
So what the hell? I mean, b- behind uh, Jimmy Olsen, you know, Alfred's probably. It, we talked about this in a previous episode. I mean, he's probably one of the most known supporting characters. You know, by Lois Lane too. I suppose I should say. I would put him. Yeah, I'd put him right up there with Lois Lane in terms of how well he's known. I mean, he's been in every Batman movie. I mean, he plays yeah. a larger role. Pretty much, a, he's huge in the Nolan movies. He's practically like the second lead. So. Yeah. Uh, next up is Commissioner Gordon, drawn by Fred Butler. Again, no idea who that is. Uh, am I the only one getting a bit of like a Tim Sale vibe from this drawing? I know this um, is pre-Tim Sale, uh, and I'm not saying that like this is like a pseudonym or something, but it just to me looks like Tim Sale. I would say on the left-hand side, the Commissioner Dr- Gordon drawing in color, mm-hmm. sure. The rest of it I wouldn't give it to you, but on the, on the, on the color piece, yeah, I could see okay. that. So anyway, this is uh, Commissioner Gordon. It's got, I mean, again, I don't think there's a lot of new information here because he did get a listing in the update. And the and the update reflects all the stuff that we learned about him in Batman Year One. Uh, there is some stuff here about Batman Year Two. I mean, they talk about Sarah Essen and things like that. But again, it's it's just, they're just trip hammering through all a lot of the major characters. Although it does get into the uh, killing joke stuff. And you see that in the serpent of, of uh, him with Barbara in her wheelchair. Killing Joke's the new stuff. That's uh, yeah. Chris confirmed for me. He said, yes, the, the new stuff for both Jim Gordon and Barbara Gordon is the Killing Joke entries that were not in their previous uh, Who's Who entries. And I've never liked that. I've never been a fan of that. I liked Killing Joke, but I never liked Killing Joke being part of DC continuity. So I think that's that stuff just always leaves me very cold. Well, that's a whole bigger conversation. Uh, I know. Have another day. Uh, so. I know. I, I like the drawing. I think Jim looks great. I like that he's smoking in the foreground. It looks like he's oh, – my mine is really muddy. It looks like he's smoking a pipe. Versus a cigarette, I can't tell. Uh, but you can clearly see the puff of smoke coming from his right hand. Um, you know, I, I like the image of him and Barbara. It's sort of tender. She's reaching up to hold his hand. You know, they talk about in the entry how he cares now for his now invalid adopted daughter. But I, I like that you see the tenderness between them. And then I like that he, you know, they show the scene where where do you know Commissioner Gordon from the most? The rooftop of the police department with the bat mm-hmm. signal, and you see Batman swooping in. I think it's nice. Again, I like you said, I don't know this Fred Butler guy, but I think he did a nice job. Yeah. I uh, hope you like him because you get to see him again. Uh, <laughs> then the very next page is Barbara Gordon, of course, a.k.a. former Batgirl. And this is, I mean, she actually does deserve a new entry because this is the killing joke happened to her uh, in, in between the spots. And this this is her. This is all the new version of, of her. But this is before she became, uh, what's Oracle and stuff? Uh, actually, in the entry, it says she's Oracle already. Well, okay. But, I mean, it's before her whole career. This, I think this is, this is right at the moment she became Oracle. It wasn't like she was Probably. birds of prey or anything like that. It wasn't happening. Well, we're going to get into some of the details about all that in a minute. You go ahead and describe the entry. Anyway, uh, it's her in the wheelchair, and then there's the surprint of her. And it's in kind of a purple. Again, I get a Tim Sale vibe from this. And then there was a shot of her uh, in the background costume and Batman looking quite beefy with his arms folded. There, but uh, yeah, you know, it's and that wheelchair looks a little wonky to me, but I'm not going to quibble that much about it. It's very narrow, very high. I don't think they really build wheelchairs like that, but this is the DC universe, of course. Looks very Professor X. Yes. <laughs> I like how Batman is standing there with his arms crossed. I can't tell whether he's disapproving of her as Batgirl or whether he's like protecting her, going, You're going to get to her through me. I can't tell. Yeah, that's her. the vibe I got. Yeah, he's trying. Yes, that, that's how I saw it. And then once again, you've got the image in the background of her with Commissioner Gordon, and she's fixing his tie, very daughter-like, mm-hmm. which is just uh, so touching. So once again, I reached out to another content expert, and I reached out to my buddy Stella about Batgirl. If you don't know Stella, shame on you. She does the Batgirl to Oracle uh, podcast, 
which is Barbara Gordon's specific podcast over at the BatmanUniverse.net. And she was a recent guest in the Film and Water podcast and a one-time guest on Secret Origins podcast. We're going to have to call a meeting with Ryan, I think. Anyway, um, she gave me a lot of information. I'm going to sort of trip hammer through here. She talks about the art first. She says it's very important to the character and to Stella that Barbara and her uncle slash adoptive father be portrayed together as they are in the background. It's a bit of an impersonal pose with the exception of Babs touching Jim's tie, but she's glad that they're in there together. Since the entry comes at a time when editorial was trying to pursue the idea that Babs had a bit of a crush on Batman, it makes sense that they put Batgirl and Batman in the foreground together. Whereas if they were true to the pre-crisis character, as well as the other modern takes, they would have had Jim and Babs in the foreground because she has a, because she has a, became a hero because she looked up to Jim. Oracle is the only color element, which makes sense, though she, uh, though there, Stella's surprised there's no computers around her. And the hair on Oracle and the headshot, it's incorrect and not what has been seen in Suicide Squad, nor the standard Bob haircut. So it's interesting to point out that they got the hair completely wrong. Now, as far as the entry goes, uh, Stella says, at this point in time, now I don't, I don't know about exact dates of what hit the shelves what, but this is for Stella. She says, it's not known that Oracle and Barbara Gordon are one and the same. Even Amanda Waller doesn't know that yet. And they call her two-year term as a congresswoman a disaster. They call it disastrous. But that's not true. According to Stella, she certainly had trouble near the end, but it was not the whole. It was not during the whole term. And frankly, her time with the humanities research and development was wrought with many more difficulties and criminal intrigues. Since here is that she only has a master's degree, whereas originally pre-crisis she had a PhD, and she also seems to have lost her brown belt. And uh, this entry, as we've talked about, brings the Killing Joke into continuity because prior to that, you know, it was debated whether it would be an Elseworld story or not. And in the end, it says that she has been retraining her battle techniques, and later on, that would be picked up by John Ostrander when he wrote Oracle Year One in uh, Batman in Batman Chronicles, and he shows Babs learning to use scrimmage sticks from Richard Dragon. So thanks for Stella for that. We appreciate it. My goodness. Yeah. Well, Stella knows her stuff. On yes, Batgirl. she will. We yes. About that. yes. I think it's a nice entry. Um, you know, first of all, Babs is a redhead. She's beautiful. She's hot. I'm in love with her. Um, this entry isn't the best representation of Babs, but it's decent. I like seeing her as Batgirl. I love that they have the motorcycle there. Because if you loved the old Batman TV show, when you think of Batgirl, you think of the motorcycle. You can't help it. Oh, that was such a sweet ride. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. All right, folks. Uh, anything else on... Oh, there's more Batman characters. Yes, there is. <laughs> Let's slow, slow your roll. Uh, next up is Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale? Vicky, Va- yeah. Vicky Vale. Okay, thank you. Vicky Vale, uh, drawn by Bove, or Bove. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I've even talked to that guy, but I've never actually asked him how you pronounce his name. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, she's here because she's in the movie. That's why. Bingo. I mean, that, that, there's no other reason to have her in here. Uh, I mean, she doesn't look like she, I mean, in the comics, she was always a redhead, but in the movie, of course, she's played Vicky Basinger, but they keep her here, uh, as a redhead. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, they have her sitting on a film strip, uh, subtle, and, uh, her and Bruce out on well, a date. Well, it's just a photographer. Well, I know, I know, but it's just, you know, it's, to me, that looks, it, that, to me, that doesn't, it looks like a movie reel. It doesn't yeah, that's true. It does. <laughs> film strip. Uh, and she's looking all fashiony and stuff like that, and it's, uh, you know, like I said, she's here because of the movie. That's it. She's pretty sexy. I mean, this drawing is straight up hot. I mean, she's wearing a super tight little green dress, and it's got all kinds of interesting geometric patterns on it. And it's very short and very tight in all the right places. She's got a sort of bedroom eye look and showing lots of leg and high heels. So it's, it's, it's very provocative. Now, the film strip, as you said, it, it's, it took me a while to figure out what that was. Those are photos of Batman. 
but uh, they're in reverse. Right. The, they're negatives. Yeah. Yeah, they're negatives of Batman, and it's kind of hard to make out that's what it is. But once you get there, you're like, oh. And I always had a hard time with Vicky Vale because, again, just like everyone else, going into the Batman movie, I thought she was Bruce Wayne's Lois Lane. And as you read this, it doesn't appear that she was as much. And I don't, you know, before 1989, my knowledge of Batman is pretty slim. So it, yeah, it she was of... not a big deal in the DCU. It really, she was dusted off by the writers, the movie writers, to, to turn her into something. Before that, she was barely really in the books. <laughs> Interesting. Well, in here they talk about her history as a photographer, how well she did, her knack, her knack for it, where it led her to become an editor of magazines and stuff like that. And, um, you yeah. It's. It, I. I think it's perfectly fine as an entry. The reasons for it might be shady, but I, I like it. I think it makes for a great classic who's who looking entry. All right. Now we're really done with the Batman books. Sorry about yeah. that. Right. Now, folks, you may have noticed there was absolutely no Batman villains in there. That's because they're going to be covered in our next episode when we get to Detective Comics. That was a clever way they sort of split them up. They put the heroic or good guy characters in Batman. They put the villains in Detective Comics. And again, Superman, you let us down. Okay. And our first entry is Chunk. <laughs> Such a funny name. And it's the same logo we saw in the updates. But the drawing here is done by Greg LaRock and Larry Mar- uh, Malstead. I love this drawing because this is exactly what Chunk looked like in the comic. So when I think of Chunk, this is the look I think of. Uh, the previous Who's Who entry, I want to say, maybe it was early on in Chunk's career. So it just it didn't sort of capture the chunkiness, I guess you could say. I mean, he was still heavy. But I mean, the, the, what I feel like the, the core of that character. So I really like this entry. He's, he's enormous. He fills the entire space. He's almost spherical, and uh, he's so heavy set. And uh, he's an African American guy, and he's got big, big eyes, and he's got like a sheepish kid sort of grin with freckles, and he's just kind of smiling in his little suit. I think he's adorable. And it goes on to talk about Chester Runk. I don't want to spend a lot of time on him, but we've talked about him in previous episodes. The gist of it is, you know, he, he has like a, a black hole in him. He can absorb matter. He has to absorb a bunch of matter. If he doesn't, uh, he'll implode. And it, and all that leads to a parallel world with like a desert planet, and he can go there or send people there. And eventually he reforms and ends up living in the Flash mansion uh, that, they, that Wally moves out of. And he becomes a supporting character for Flash. I don't really know that there's any new information in here other than maybe Mary West is working for uh, Chunk at this point with his removal service. Other than that, I don't think there's anything new here. And, and the logo's even the same as last time. What do you think of this one? Had Chunk turned into a good guy in the last entry? Because he's the good guy now. Is that the difference? Or was he still just a villain? I don't remember. I don't remember his previous entry. Well, I, I want to say by the end of his first storyline, he wasn't still wasn't a villain. It was kind of like he was misunderstood. Well, he was okay, but better. here he's here he's working for. Yeah, he, he may have that remove. He may not have had the removal service, and I don't. I mean, someone can sit there and compare him side by side and do that for us, and we appreciate everyone who wants to do work for us because I'm lazy. But altogether, I love the entry, and again, as him as a supporting character of Flash for a long time, I'm happy to see this character. It's a fun drawing. I love the way he he's really is. literally bursting the limits of the page. I mean. How he moves around, I don't know, but we don't have to get into all that. Comics! <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, because comics. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly, you're really getting the impression of every pound of his 515 pounds. Yes, you really are. <laughs> all right, up next is Jay Garrick, The Flash. Woohoo! And this is by none other than Joe Kubert. Oof. Now, first, I thought this might be an old drawing taken because it looks so great, so classic Joe Kubert, but it says 1989. And uh, you've got Jay running at the camp, running at you in the foreground. In the background, you've got the fiddler. You've got the shade. You've got Jay on the ground after he's been knocked out and exposed to the hard water chemicals. And you've got a close-up of his face. He's still wearing the helmet, but it's still a nice close-up of the face. Now, it's not a surprint because the background looks like it has multiple colors, perhaps? Well, I guess they're all just maybe shades of reddish purple. I don't know. 
but I guess it is sort of a faded background, so that counts. I'm not going to recant Jay's origin. We all know it. He was Earth 2, at least in the post-crisis. You know, it's Keystone City, and, uh, and that city disappeared for a long time. And uh, they don't actually talk much about the uh, – no, essentially, they don't talk about it at all, how the, how, the, how the city disappeared from, like, 1951. Maybe that story hadn't been told. Maybe the Flash of Two Worlds Grant Morrison version hadn't come out yet. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Anyway, it talks about Jay, talks about him retiring and how he's back in action, and that's thanks to, thanks to Barry. Barry brought him back in action. And then it sadly goes on to that JSA, last days of the JSA thing where they end up in Ragnarok and all that nonsense. But the art is gorgeous, and that's what I choose to focus on. Now, this is your old instructor here, buddy. Yes. Oh, I love it. It's terrific. I love that they bothered to get him to do this. I think that's great. I love that it's the old-timey Flash logo from the 40s. I love everything about it. I think it's it's... I know that I love all things old timey, and David A. Scudieres make funny making fun of me right now as he's listening to this. But I really would have loved like a whole book of like classic, like a Dick Sprang, Joe Cuba, like get all the old guys. That would have been like a mm. really cool, neat little thing. Um, so I'm really happy that they made the effort to to get him to do this because it's you know the the Flash is not a character he's particularly known for. It's not Hawkman or Sergeant Rock. Uh, I mean, he did do some work on the character, but I mean, it's kind of unique to get him to do this, and I'm I'm really glad they did. I think it's a really handsome piece. Is that the old Flash logo? Yeah, that's the '40s one. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Now let's make a couple things clear. I mean, one is you said David's making fun of you because you're talking about old timey things. Let's be perfect. David's making fun of you all the time. Well, that's, I mean, that's true. So, I mean, let's not have any confusion here. Now, the other thing, too, is it is surprising they have this in there because they had no reason to do this for the most part. I mean, Jay was gone from the comics. He had been since 1986, and he wasn't going to come back till about 1992. So the fact that here in 1989 they felt enough to give him a full page just because of the legacy of the Flash is pretty impressive. All right. Up next is Barry Allen. Two-page spread for Barry Allen. Art by Carmen Infantigo. Fantigo? That would have been interesting. <laughs> it's very late. Carmen Infantino and John Nyberg. Again, you know Barry's story. Heck, you can watch it on TV nowadays. Uh, I'm not going to talk a lot about it, but you got Barry. He starts off in his suit, and it, it's a basically one whole page is dedicated to Barry transforming into the Flash, putting the costume on, and running at uh, you sort of from the from the left to the or right to the left, which is nice, in very classic Carmen Infantino, where you can see lots of little after images of him in the background. And you see the, the faces of lots of the rogues, the top and Captain Cold and Abracadabra and uh, Captain Boomerang and Mr. Uh, well, no, no, um, Mirror Master, Gorilla Grodd, who's freakishly small in that picture. And then you get his supporting cast down at the bottom there. And it's interesting that they sort of stuck with the Serpent idea and did everything in shades of red. So even Captain Cold's goggles are red, and you know Mirror Master's helmet's or mask is red, and Captain Boomerang's red. So they just stuck with red, which is kind of cool. The only thing really worth going into, and I really dread even going into it here, is after his death in Crisis, they do sit here and talk a little bit about how he became he. Ugh, I hate this. He die when he dies in Crisis. He becomes the energy <laughs> back in time and becomes the lightning bolt that creates himself. He is his own grandpa. You know, whatever. Uh, I just I I ugh, don't like it. So, what you think? <laughs> uh, I like the drawing. Uh, no, I like I like the drawing a lot. I I always appreciate Carmen Infantino taking the time to draw all those flash after images. Yes, because that's a lot of friggin' work. Um, it kind of this this flash image reminds me a bit of the cover to Flash number three hundred because mm. it has the Flash running around smacking the crap out of a bunch of his different villains on a very light blue background. So, and I love that comic; it's one of my favorite DC anniversary issues uh, ever. 
Uh, and so it reminds me of that. I think it's 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 nice, you know. It's except there's not other than the Speed Force stuff. There's not a lot of new things here. But you know, it's in the Flash comic, so we got to give them all this. You know, we got to do the listing for all these Flash characters. So yeah, I think it's handsome. Now, to be fair, I should take a step back. I'm I'm kvetching about what's essentially just the last paragraph. Um, the rest of it is a traditional Barry Allen entry. I mean, they take a lot of time to go through his whole history, and it's a very well fleshed out who's who entry. I just the end irritates me. That's all. But it, it's still it's very well done. And this probably would be one of the last times Carmen gets a chance to draw Barry Allen. I would think. Maybe yeah. Yeah. So all right. Up next, the Wally West Flash, and this one is drawn by Greg Larocque and Larry Maltstead. And it actually says here, uh, and what? All copy written by Mark Wade. That's a weird, yeah. That's a weird little credit. That's very strange. So anyway, th- this I like. Th- I like this one quite a bit because when I, I started reading Flash, when Greg Larock was the artist, and so th- this is sort of my Wally West, my initial Wally West Flash. And, it, and really, when I think about him, I think of like the Mike Paraback or Mike Waringo version. That's really my Wally West. But uh, but this is this is really really nice. So you got Wally running at you, and in the background you see. The original Teen Titans, then you see the new Teen Titans, then you see Justice League Europe. So it's showing his sort of his different teams he's been a member of. You see him in the background running with Jay. And uh, you know what? Barry's not in this picture anywhere. That's interesting. Mm. Well, I don't think it's an omission necessarily, but it's uh, interesting that they chose to show everyone else. Okay. But anyway, a very nice entry. You talk about Wally, you know, it's. Again, I don't need to go, need to go into a lot of the details. You know, he gets their powers, their recreation of the accident. They talk about his history in Blue Valley. They talk about how he had to cut back from being the Flash, or Kid Flash, I should say, because the speed force was, or the speed power was killing him. The crisis happens, and it sort of fixes his speed power, but he's slower, and it's a little unreliable. But he takes the mantle because Barry has passed away. So he becomes the Flash, and uh, they, they talk about, uh, you know, that whole thing. You talk about his metabolism. They talk about how his speed has become a little unreliable, and the psychologist thinks that Barry may have actually implanted something in his head to say, if you ever use your speed powers irresponsibly, you will lose them. And at this point, Wally was trying to charge people for using his speed powers to save them, so, uh, or at least for activities. So it's, it's possible that that's what's causing him his problems. And, and Wally developing into his own is a theme that's going to continue all the way through this run all the way into you know early days of mark wade until wally sort of becomes i don't want to call him the ultimate flash but he sort of like achieves peace with himself and becomes super duper flash which is just a wonderful progression and it makes a great story thank god he's back in the dc universe by the way very happy about did you read rebirth no wally's back like the real wally makes me very happy and anyway it's a nice picture what do you think of this his arms are so tiny. I don't know why <gasps> his arms are so Why'd tiny. Why'd you do that? Sorry. Why'd you do that to me now? Sorry. Uh, no, it's fine. It's fine. I, I wish the space had been used kind of a little more effectively. There's this whole big sea of white uh, with nothing going on. I like the idea of him running sort of the eras of the teams. I think that's that's a fun idea. Um, so it's it's fine. It's fine. Now, Justice League Europe is still pretty new at this point. To point out exactly how new this Justice League Europe idea is, who's in the front, if you would tell me, Rob, of the Justice League Europe picture? That's Wonder Woman. Any idea how long she was a member of that team? Justice League Europe? Yeah. Oh, like 
like two issues or something, right? Like four panels. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's more than that, but it doesn't feel like it. I mean, she's in and out. So this must have hit, I, and I don't have my JLI timeline in front of me, but this must have hit right at the same time. Either Justice League Europe was about to come out or just did, because <laughs> she did not last long. The The Wonder Woman office was not having that. <laughs> I like how derpy uh, Metamorpho looks. It's just that look on Aww. his face just cracks me up a little. <laughs> Derpy's a good word for that. Yeah, derp, derp. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on. All right, up next is Mary West, and this is the mother of Wally West, and this is probably the funniest picture in the whole thing. I don't don't get it. It's drawn by John Koch, K-O-C-H, and Tim Dazan. I don't know who either of these guys are. And and quite frankly, the image isn't isn't wonderful, but it's hysterical. It's Mary West standing there in the in the in the sky floating above her is like a maniacal version of her husband who looks evil and there is a very very young 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 Wally in a flash costume clutching her leg. She, it's the hero shot. It's the classic fantasy movie hero shot where usually it's the guy and he's holding a sword and the girl's hanging onto his leg. But no, it's her in a pink house dress and she's holding a rolling pin and Wally is clutching to her leg, you know, looking up at her adoringly. It's, and she's looking off in the distance ready to kick some ass. It is hysterical. It cracks me up. I, I, I purposely didn't want to read the listing probably because, A, I don't read the listings. And secondly, it can't live up to the drawing. It doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I eventually did read the listing because I was just so curious. But, yeah, I was right. It doesn't It doesn't do justice to that. I, I guess I don't remember her all that well. I mean, I read these comics, but I don't remember her really specifically as being amazing. So you know, Martin Gray in the feedback does say that she was like the breakout character of the 90s. So maybe this is sort of representative of her. I mean, she did survive quite a bit. Her husband went all manor, Manhunter-ish and tried to kill her. You know, he, he dumped her on a cruise ship and made the boat crash, I guess. And she somehow survived that. She, she, uh, she's moved in with Wally, and now she's working for Chunk. And uh, it, it's a hoot. I don't know. I, I just love this image, though. It's an absolute, absolute hoot. All right, moving on. Up next is Joan Williams Garrick. So this is Jay Garrick's wife, who is a supporting character in the book at this time. And uh, it's just it's a very straightforward image. She looks a little bit Aunt Mayish in the front with a big old smile, wearing a red sweater. And in the background, you can see Jay running towards her. And she's Jay's, you know, um, sweetheart from college. And she eventually found out he was uh, the Flash, and they fell in love. And I love Joan. I'm used to seeing her in the uh, sort of post-era once the, the JSA had come back. I don't really remember her from this period all that well. I remember her more from the later days. But uh, it's, it's, it's – RITR is not that great. Fine, I'll just say it. But, <laughs> but it's nice to see Joan. How do you feel about this one? Did she – she continued to age, right, while he didn't? Is that how that worked? Um, yeah, because he, he, had, he was infused with like that Ian Cockrell thing and it kept him young. Cockrell, and they went, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it, it was very loosey goosey depending on the series. Some series they made an issue of the, the hero staying young and, the, and their spouses getting older. Sometimes the spouses stayed in step with the heroes because, you know, apparently the swapping of fluids, maybe they got a little <laughs> inc- coolishness. I don't know. You know, I don't think they wanted to get into the details of that. But uh, at this point, she certainly was elderly. You know? Okay. All right. I, I, so I don't remember them making a if, – if they ever made a big deal about it, it probably would have been during the Mike Parabek JSA series because that was the series that sort of addressed how old they were. Which they, didn't they run very long anyway. They didn't have much Only of a Only went chance. 10 issues. Yeah. They canceled it before the first issue even hit the, hit the shelves, which is a crime. 
And apparently it all came back. We, we learned about this in the feedback in a previous episode. It all came down to DC deciding they didn't want to publish a comic about old people, which is horrible because it's a lovely comic book. We even got Jesse Quick out of it. It's adorable. Mm. So, all right, uh, just a, a, a couple more pages here on the Flash characters. We'll, we'll blaze through these pretty quickly. Next is Mason Trollbridge, who has the greatest last name of anyone ever, who apparently is uh, dating Mary West. At least that's the hint you kind of get from the storyline. It's him standing there basically in a, a green suit with a little sort of cabbie hat. In the background, you see him in like a, a superhero costume. Uh, at least he's covered with a big fedora and a mask, and you see his face. Basically, he apparently a long time ago used to be a sidekick to a crime fighter known as the Clipper during the Depression. And now he's become a supporting character of the Flash uh, series, and he is even donning the Clipper-looking costume, trademark cloak and hat, and patrolling the city at night at this point in history. Very cool. Any comments? I have no idea who this is. I assume the troll bridge is meant to be a joke. Yeah. Because we sure. say trolls live under bridges. So he's troll bridge. Uh, yeah, I really have no idea who this is. And I, I read the Flash comic, and I must have read that issue because I read Flash for the first couple of years, but zero memory of this guy. None. I'm really glad you said all of that because I'm just going to say ditto. <laughs> it's very strange. It's like a gap in my memory. Yeah. Maybe I missed some issues. I don't know. Anyway, all right, next up is Jerry, and these are half-page entries, by the way. Mason Trollbridge and uh, Jerry and Tina McGee share a page. So now we get Jerry and Tina McGee, and we saw Jerry uh, in one of the updates as Speed McGee, but here they have uh, reconciled their romance. They do show in the surprint a picture of Speed's face, like a profile shot, and he's just screaming, which is pretty, actually, kind of cool, effective. By the way, both of these are done by Greg Rock and Larry Mulstead. And Speed is sort of screaming. In the foreground, you see Jerry and Tina there sort of lovingly, like their Olin Mills family portrait. And uh, it just talks about how, you know, she was assigned to study Flash's physiology and from a nutritionist point of view. And eventually they became uh, romantically involved and how Jerry became Speed Demon. And now that Jerry is sort of better and they're reconciling, which to Amanda Pays fans everywhere breaks their heart. All right. Uh, for more on The Flash, you know, you should check out The Flash Podcast, which is from a buddy of ours, Andy. It's mainly focused on the TV show, but, you know, the TV show is so in close in line with so much of the comics, it's definitely worth checking out. And uh, there's a few other Flash podcasts out there. I haven't had a chance to check them out yet, but there's one specific to comics called Flashback. So I may have to check that one out. But I think that's going to do it for the entries this time out, Rob, wouldn't you say? Isn't there one more Flash entry to do? So there's one more Flash entry to do. <laughs> <laughs> called the Capitalist Couriers. Sorry, sorry, I blocked them. I blocked them out. After I'm sorry, the... I brought it up. No, exactly. After what we went through with Red Trinity and Blue Trinity during the last uh. update, you think you would have just skipped over this? So, yes, Capitalist Couriers, and uh, not only you know is they we always say the surprints in one color. This whole entry is in one color. Basically, you got black lines and red. That's all you get in this thing, folks. And it is done by Mike Parabek and Paul Finch. And that is the only saving grace is that Mike Parabek's involved in this. Although Paul uh, Frick, I guess I should say. Uh, didn't do uh, Mike any favors in the inking, I think. You, you don't see the Mike Parabek-ishness in the art, do you? No, I no. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the drawing. I'm sorry, I should say that. It's not like the previous uh, Red Trinity and Blue Trinity drawings, which were abysmal. Um, those were really, really bad. This, the drawing's fine. It just doesn't look very Mike Parabek-ish. In the foreground, you've got the three characters running at you. In the background, you've got all of them with their hoods fitted back, and you can see their smiling faces. I, I do love the logo, because the capitalist couriers are spelled with Ks, and the Ks are backwards, like Russian language, which I just think's a hoot. And it basically, yes, this is the story of the Red Trinity. We've talked about them before. Now they are operating in the United States as the capitalist couriers, a speed delivery service. 
And uh, it's it's a it's a cute drawing, and uh, it's probably worthy of being in there. But I'm moving on. And that's gonna do it, man. Now, next time, folks, when we uh, we're we're about to get to your feedback, but next time we're, we're gonna talk about the entries from. Justice League International Annual Number Three, Question Annual Number Two, Green Arrow Annual Number Two, New Teen Titans or New Titans at that point Annual Number Five, Swamp Thing Annual Number Five, Doctor Fate Annual Number One, Wonder Woman Annual Number Two, and Detective Comics Annual Number Two. <laughs> well, Rob, with that, I think we should go to break, and when we come back, we're going to do your listener feedback. Well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman Invisible Plane. Oh, jeez. Well, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed. No change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standee. thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Hello everyone, my name is Pat and I'm the host of a new podcast called The Longbox Crusade. A while back my wife said to me, why do you keep buying more comics? I bet you have not even read all the comics you have already. Well, she's right, but let's keep that between you and me. So I took her up on the challenge to read them all. I decided to read my collection of comic books in chronological order by the issue's cover dates. I wanted to relive their adventures and bring back the memories I had of my childhood in the late 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. My collection has been stashed away in over 20 plus long boxes in the basement. I'll leave it up to your imagination as to why I cannot have them on display upstairs. But that's a different story. The Longbox Crusade podcast will be of recaps and reviews of the issues in my collection in a fun and friendly way. You can find the podcast at longboxcrusade.com. I hope you will join me on this crusade to read them all. And we're back with a segment we call Who's Who, How's, and Why's. And folks, this is the feedback section. We've collected all of your feedback from all around the interwebs, whether it be Twitter or Facebook, our website, which is probably the best place to leave your comments. What's that website, Rob? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. That's right. Uh, Also on iTunes, places like that. So with that, why don't we get to those iTunes reviews? And folks, just so you know, we currently have 26 iTunes reviews, which is it's okay. The original Fire and Water podcast feed, which is where Who's Who debuted for the first several years, has well over 100. So we still really want to build those Who's Who reviews. Uh, on iTunes. They really help raise the profile show and help other people find the show. And interestingly enough, a lot of people are finding the show right now. We're getting lots of new listeners and, and we're hearing from them and building this community of folks who tell Rob and I when we're wrong about everything. And we would like that community to continue to grow. So please, please, I'm begging you, on bended knee, uh, to please go out there and give us a review of the Who's Who podcast. It would be greatly appreciated. First one we got is from our pal Tom Panneries, who we've already mentioned on the show a bunch of times. 
He says, not only thorough, but so much fun. I don't know if I could say much more than the praise that's already been heaped upon this podcast, but Rob and Shag have taken on the task of going through one of my favorite all-time series and really do a great job. They both have a love for Who's Who, DC Comics, and all the varied characters that have been part of the company's long history. The coverage is great, and the chemistry between the two of them is even better. I think he copy and pasted that from another podcast. He must have. That yeah. couldn't be talking about us. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much, Tom. Maybe he's talking about him and Stella because they were had that little segment in the last episode. Maybe so. Yeah. Okay. Up next is Noah Abe. I assume that's how you say it. A B B E. And he's the mysterious hyphen man. If you ever on iTunes and you see a review from just somebody whose name's a bunch of hyphens, it's Noah. Anyway, uh, subject line was second only to the original Aquaman and Firestorm podcast. He goes on to say, "My introduction to the podcast listening came from Robin Shag's Aquaman and Firestorm podcast, and this feels like an extension of that show, just with way more characters. I love listening to this show, and Robin Shag's thinly veiled, or is it veiled at all, contempt for one another never fails to crack me up." It's great to hear their thoughts on the heroes and villains of the DCU. No, it's it's not very thinly veiled. I hate this guy. David Tony, I'm not even going to argue with that. David Tony <laughs> uh, leaves and he says, who's who? This is who. As a longtime fan of the Who's Who comics, I devoured the comics when they came out. These were a blast to read. I poured over my copies time and time again well into the 90s. I grew out of reading comics. Hmm? And sent my Who's Who copies out into the world years ago. Sent them out into the world. I like that idea. Put them, in, <laughs> put them in bottles or something and threw them in, in the ocean. But I never lost my love of indexing everything about a comic character, especially those at DC. You can imagine my surprise and excitement when I stumbled upon this podcast. It was right up my alley. Robin Chag do a fantastic job of painting a picture of the book as you're listening. When they say you don't have to have the comic in front of you, they are right. I can still remember the art behind the entries, and Robin Chag do a great job of helping me remember them as they discuss. Awesome, David. Now, I, I got to imagine this is, this issue that we've covered so far, these entries we've covered this episode are probably a little bit different for people to have trouble remembering because they weren't collected. So, again, go out to our website. They'll all be there. Next one, next iTunes review. Now, this one's from Devin Clancy. Devin Clancy, he gets us. He totally understands us because check this out. Now, as, as I, I didn't mention at the beginning, but I've said it before, one of the benefits of leaving an iTunes review is we will read your entire review on the show. We don't do that for the rest of the stuff. The rest of the stuff we have to cherry pick what we're going to talk about. But if you leave an iTunes review, one of our ways of thank you is we read the entire review. And Devin is a clever, clever man. So he goes on to write, it's definitive. It says so right in the title. Robin Shag taught us <laughs> Robin Shag taught the world what Serpent is. That in and itself makes the show worthy of praise. <laughs> These guys have a healthy mix of critical eye and a genuine love for the material. They also appreciate a good copy editor. The letters page of listeners' feedback at the end is cool too. You have to appreciate their sense of community because they read every review on this show. I'm going to take the time to remind myself to change the filter in my air conditioner. <laughs> So he put that in there, knowing we're going to read the whole review in the air. There you go, Devin. Don't forget, change the filter in your air conditioner. And thank you for that review, sir. Oh, I love it when people get us. Finally, we heard from Mike from the Canadian Military History Podcast. He wrote a great series. Congrats. <laughs> this is what he wrote. I'm not making this up. Uh, he wrote, congrats. Congratulations, Sag and Rob and Shag. Apparently, there's three hosts. There's Rob, Shag, and Sag. <laughs> anyway, Mike, I'm just picking on you, buddy, but it's, it cracks me up. Uh, uh, congratulations for producing a wonderful walk through the comic book series, Who's Who. Thank you, Mike. We do sincerely appreciate that, even though we, uh, we laughed at you. <laughs> that concludes the iTunes reviews. Uh, I had to talk about this next thing. This is not really feedback on the show, but Todd Klein. You guys know him. He does the amazing logos that we talk about uh, throughout the previous run of this series. He did a lot of the logos in the Who's Who entry. He's been posting these uh, 
items on his blog called DC Comics Offices 19, and 1982 to 1991. And just recently he, paint, he posted part four. And it's on his website, which is KleinLetters.com, K-L-E-I-N, letters.com. And he wrote in basically just saying um, – well, has to, uh, the part I clipped out of this is about the yellow wallpaper. We talked earlier about the yellow dots. And if you look at the previous uh, eras of Who's Who, they always had the yellow border with the, with the yellow dots where at the bottom there was mostly white. And as it would transition to the top, you'd have a, a thick yellow at the top. And it's basically supposed to show the color printing process and how dots created colors. And wasn't that that idea from Neil Posner? Isn't that right? Yes. Okay. His, and he was the design director for DC at the time. That's awesome. So Todd goes on to describe how that pattern was then reproduced on the walls. And he says, many who visited the offices were amazed, stunned, or otherwise assaulted by the loud yellow dotted wallpaper modeled for us here, and there's a picture, uh, for us by production manager Bob Rosakis, who's clearly triumphing over his Hawaiian shirt. Indeed, the photos don't really capture its bright golden yellow brilliance. Former editor Mark Wade reports that it was designed by famed graphic designer Milton Glazier, a friend of publisher Jeanette Kahn, at her request. The wallpaper was the kind of thing that probably looked like a fun idea when it was small, but when it was enlarged to wall size, became the stuff of headaches and nightmares. (laughs) Wade reports that Jeanette had extra rolls stashed in her office in case of damage or perhaps an employee berserker rage event. (laughs) Fortunately, it was mostly on the hallway walls and not in the rooms and offices. So, yes, we've got one image, and, you know, I think we're going to put these – apologies to Tom for uh, – Todd for stealing the images, but I think we'll put these up on, the, on our webpage as well just to show people. Image again, Bob Rosakis in his Hawaiian shirt, and, yes, the yellow dots sort of still overshadow the Hawaiian shirt. And then there's a picture of Archie Goodwin, which in – I have to assume is maybe a kitchen or the snack room. Well, you can see the kitchen in the background, and you see the yellow wallpaper, and Archie Goodwin is wearing a Donald Duck hat, which is too funny. But you really get an idea on – how assaulting that yellow wallpaper was to the eyes. As much as I love the yellow dots, it is sort of shocking to see it in real life. Kind of scary. Yeah. yeah you I saw did. this in person, right? I did. I was at the DC offices at one point when, it, when, when they had that as a teenager. So I remember thinking it looked pretty cool. I, I, you know, I went to both Marvel and DC, and Marvel's was like – Marvel's was what you would think it would look like. It looked like a college dorm. <laughs> DC's was much more businesslike and clean, and they had like all this framed covers on the wall, and so I, I remember thinking it looked pretty cool. All right. But Fair I didn't enough. have to live with it every day. Right, exactly. All right, now we're getting into your comments, and again, most of these come from our website, and we're gonna have to just cherry pick various bits because there's just far too much to read, folks. So uh, you guys are most the most amazing podcast community out there. The feedback you guys give, you you educate me and Robs. I'm Rob more than me, really, because Robs. Honestly, he's just a vapid uh, bimbo, but or himbo. Uh, but the education you guys provide for us is really rewarding, and the, the, I'd say the, the 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 section here at the end is just as important as the front part of the show. All right, first up from Professor Alan Quarterbin from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, and uh, also uh, I happen to be on the Quarterbin just recently talking about my beloved Ultraverse, and uh, he also does a show called uh, an epilogue called Darkness to Light, and does a lot of those with his daughter. And he says, uh, let's see. I, we talked about Spectre in the previous one, and I said I couldn't think of any good Spectre podcasts or blogs. And he came in to say there's actually quite a number of places with some Spectre content. The Parliament of Rooks cover all the magical and supernatural characters in the DCU, including the Spectre. And the show is at Thomas uh, Linnae. It's probably just best to look up Parliament of Rooks. And then he says the Spectre's adventures in All-Star Comics are covered by Van Z, our buddy Al Gerding, in the All-Star Comics Review podcast. And then he also says his daughter, Emily, has talked about the Spectre on Episode 2 of their Darkness to Light podcast. You can find that just by Googling that. They also have a blog. Very cool, Alan. Thank you very much. Jose Rivera says, in regards to the ventriloquist in a live-action Batman movie, Paul Giamatti would be amazing. 
Never, mm. never thought of that, but it fits so well. He doesn't have to be in the movie all that often either. You could do it like a James Bond opening set piece where it's a short film in itself, but also sets up Batman. He could be robbing a bank or something, and we see Affleck's Batman get the drop on him. After seeing Jamati and shoot him up, I'd love to see him as the ventriloquist. Also, the Terry Long entry, when you say it looks like he's reading a New Teen Titans bound edition by the company that I use, I laugh so hard. As always, <laughs> keep up the amazing work. I can't wait to get to the binder editions. Well, that makes one of you, Jose. Oh. Then we heard from our buddy Jeff Nettleton. and um, Jeff left us like an encyclopedia worth of comments, as usual, which we appreciate. Uh, I mean, it's like kind of annoying to read, but whatever. Thanks, Jeff. Anyway, he goes on to say, uh, from what I recall, John Ostender based Amanda Waller somewhat on a woman he knew. She's very much the type of community activist you would find in Chicago, where the where Ostender was living. Hmm. Interesting. And he talks about uh, now. Jeff is a formal naval officer. As I seem to recall. And uh, he actually took the artist to task in the last entry on some of their military characters. He goes, ugh, you can tell a civilian drew Etta saluting. George, uh, meaning Perez, I love you, but the hand should come to the edge of the bill of the hat with the middle finger nearly touching, hand tilted slightly downward. Now drop and give me 20. <laughs> and then uh, it goes on and said, again to say, what the heck is up with General Eiling's hat? Roderick, get down there with Perez and knock out 50. The thing is, an Air Force hat doesn't have points. It looks like Broderick got confused with a police officer's cap. You know, those are amazing details. And I love hearing from someone from the military who had an eye for these things. And it probably frustrated the crap. I wonder what it was like for Jeff reading some of the old war comics. I wonder what their level of accuracy would have been and uh, how he felt about those. <laughs> Let us know, Jeff. Maybe there's a podcast in that. Well, there's actually several podcasts out there talking about war comics right now. Kyle Benning's doing one, and uh, I'm blanking. I don't know. Other fo- other friends of ours. I'm so sorry. Well, Tom Panarista does in country, but I'm talking about getting a military, somebody who was in the military to talk about that. Mm. You know, Jeff Nolan's – I've said it a few times. He, he's been a guest on uh, Secret Origins. Secret Origins. And uh, he's been circling around, eventually making a podcast. Now, Jeff, i got to warn you, once you become a podcaster – the amount of time you leave comments suddenly becomes nil. You look at look at Diablo Frank. He used to write us, you know, bound volumes of comments. Now we get, you know, maybe just little pamphlets nowadays. Anyway, heard from our buddy Martin Gray, who does the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. He says, I was amazed that so many positive things were said about the Zatanna entry. The costume's just horrendous, so matronly, apart from the wings, which are ludicrous. What next? A unicorn horn? It's <laughs> it's like something designed by bizarro Paul Gamby. <laughs> Paul Gamby. That's brilliant. And the body, Lord, her head is huge, and she appears to have no joints in her arms. Well, there you go. There's a vote against that costume. Uh, he says, the Perry White drawing is indeed stunning, but I think the young guy in front is young Perry White, and he is smoking hot, as opposed to the cigars. <laughs> and then he says, Mary West was the breakout character of the 90s. Bring her back. So, you know, I think that fits in well with that entry of the art we saw in this, this episode. Uh, he says, Terry Long. Ugh. Creepy git with Ginger Minge. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. It's just fun. You should have done it in his accent. <laughs> I Now that I've talked to Martin directly because he was on Film and Water, I, I feel a little bad that I was making fun of – not making fun of his accent, but but just sort of being silly like that. Because now, now he's like a real person to me that I've met. Well, he's he's a lovely man. I mean, yes. he really is. He's he's so nice. He's so it, like we give each other a bunch of crap, you know, publicly. But in the private messages, where he's he's very polite. Yes, and, you right. know, I, I I like the way he speaks. I can't understand a word he's saying, but he has a nice tone and a lilt in his voice. So, you know, it's just a bunch of Scottish nonsense whenever he speaks. But he's not really Scottish. I just say that to get on his nerves. <laughs> then we hear from jo- heard from Joe X. He says, "Was there ever a connection between Scarface and the Golden Age villain, the Dummy? Huh? You know." 
that sort of puts me in mind. I wonder if Scarface was a bit of an attempt because you know they were always retconning old villains and bringing them back, you know, redesigning them, Velvet Tiger, you know, whatever. But um, it, it, interesting if Scarface was an attempt to actually modernize the dummy. <laughs> I don't know. Interesting thought. He also says, I like the idea of the weird, but the printing on the series was absolute garbage. Total waste of Bernie Wrightson. Starlin used him again later, but no one else could be bothered. <laughs> I do remember that. That's funny that Joe said that. I do. I bought the weird, and I remember thinking that the printing was really bad, like lines dropping out. And, and, and uh, Wrightson did wow. such, such delicate line work that, yeah, yeah, that's funny. I hadn't really thought about that. But, yeah, that, that series, the printing of it really did look terrible. Well, I wonder if could it have been the inking? Because if the inker didn't ink the line, no, it was like washed out. Like it was just, it was just, it it just didn't. The colors were, yeah, it just didn't look good. Hmm. Okay, and this is after Flexographic, so it's not that interesting. No, yeah, it wasn't that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Then uh, Joe continues. uh, Joe X continues. We talked about art. I was. Back and forth in Art Thibbert and Art T. Bear. He corrects me. It's Art T. Bear. It says, great art. There's a lost Nightwing mini from the early 90s that he wrote and drew. I didn't know what that meant. I was like, huh? What is it? I didn't know if that was a throwaway line saying, like, boy, that would have been great to see Art T. Bear draw that or what. So I did some research. Sure enough, yeah, Art T. Bear was sort of uh, planning to do a Nightwing miniseries back in 1992. In fact, they put together a, a nice art piece that was either for a poster or a pinup. And, uh, it was pu- that, that particular art piece was published in the Titans sellout special, but it was a promotional poster for a Nightwing limited, uh, limited series, and it was scrapped, and R.T. Bear left DC to draw Marvel's immensely popular cable series instead. R.T. Bear, now, ignore the art we talked about today, which is three years earlier, uh, of Batman, but R.T. Bear around 1992, drawing a Nightwing ser- miniseries would have been awesome. And I don't, Nightwing didn't get a miniseries for quite a while, I don't want to say, and uh, like after that. So would've, that would have been a great chance for his, his first solo adventures. Hmm. Um, Jeanette Clyburn, he says Jeanette Clyburn was going to be part of Marv Wolfman's Abortive Flash series, which was dropped for the Wally West series. I seem to remember hearing that Marv Wolfman had a Flash book in mind, but I, I, I'd forgotten that. Then he said about, about Jeanette Clyburn, he said, John Burns, Kitty Faulkner, which went on to be Rampage, also struck me as a stand-in for Jeanette Clyburn, and I absolutely agree with that. It does feel like that. And along those same lines, later on, it talks about the Capitalises, I don't know how you say that, from that we talked about last episode, Wonder Woman supporting cast. Mm-hmm. They were replaced by the clones, what he called, he called the clone Sandsmarks, uh, once Byrne took over. And he's right. There was the same sort of vibe with the... Capitalises and the Sandmarks. The Sandmarks is a family that came into the Wonder Woman book, and eventually Cassie became Wonder Girl. So it does have that same vibe. And he says, which is sort of shocking, he's one of the few people that says this, uh, Terry Longart is nice, and it seems like the girl is imagining the Sir Prince scene. Wow. I, I think you're one of the few people that feel that way, buddy. And it says, uh, and isn't he the spitting image of Len Wein? Hey, he's the future father of supervillain Lord, Ka- super Lord Chaos. Shouldn't he get an entry? Uh, Lord Chaos, better forgotten. Heard from our buddy Jeff R. He always gives us our egregious omissions. He says, I thought I would be off omissions for a while, and obviously not going to be any for the annuals. Jeff, I'm going to stop you right there, buddy. I expect to see a whole list of egregious omissions on the Superman books. Thank you very much. I will see that in the feedback. If it's not, I'll be taking it to task, buddy. Anyway, he goes on to say, but I might be able to do something for the specialist volumes, meaning like Legion and Star Trek. Speaking of which, I notice you never talk about the impact volumes when you plan and talk about your plans, which would be sort of sad ending to the podcast, but shouldn't it, it shouldn't be left out entirely. <sighs> you know, you're right. The impact volumes are part of who's who. They should absolutely be done, but you're right. It's sort of like, I don't 
I don't want to end the series. When the series does eventually end, when Rob and I are on Social Security, I don't necessarily want to end on Impact. It doesn't feel right. It feels like we should go out on something else. So Rob and I are going to put our collective heads together and figure out how we want to handle that when we get to that in the 2050s. And he says, but to wrap up this volume, meaning uh, update 88, he says the two supporting characters that got left out of the supporting character list are and a tie for Chaz from Hellblazer and Father Richard Kramer from Suicide Squad, both who were cornerstones of their respective books and are already um, and were already clear for both cases. I, I, I apparently can't read this statement. So he says there's clear cases for both of these characters who appear in the book. Okay. <laughs> uh, we got a message from Paul Hicks from the Waiting of Doom podcast. He says this is – that's a terrible Australian accent. That's this, not a knife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. Uh, this feels like the end of something huge. I really wish you were moving straight on to the Loose Leaf series. I'll listen to Star Trek and Legion episodes mostly for the personalities of the hosts rather than the content. You got anything you want to say there? Uh, well, that's a nice thing to say. Uh, I mean I can't blame him for if he's not interested, he's not interested. Uh, so I, we hope that at least for Shag doing Legion and me doing Star Trek that we'll be able to – Keep you interested, Paul. Just so you know, the plan is, uh, the Star Trek, I, I, I don't know, how, are you planning to do one episode or two episodes on Star Trek? Two. Two, okay. Uh, he's going to do two episodes on Star Trek, and you're going to have some guest hosts. Can you say mm-hmm. who at this point or not? We have not uh, finalized uh, okay. everything uh, just yet. I'm waiting for Mr. Shatner to get back to me. <laughs> he stole my joke. <laughs> I was going to do the same thing. Uh, the Legion of Superheroes one. It is a seven-issue series, guys. We're not going to cover it over seven episodes. We're going to try and get it down to two or three episodes in quick, uh, segments, but here's the cool thing: I'm bringing in the Legion of Super Bloggers to help me out. So you're going to hear from a lot of the folks uh, that are part of the Legion of Super Bloggers, the ones that you've heard on the Fire and Water Podcast Network before, and uh, those guys are going to help me out and cover those books, and we're going to have a good time with it. And uh, yeah, it, it it will be relatively brief. So, but for the, concerning the personalities involved, it should be fun. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> then we heard from what are you laughing at? I it was something funny I thought of earlier. <laughs> Hate you so much. <laughs> then we heard from Michael Bailey, our buddy from Fuse in the Long Box, from Crisis to Crisis, the Superman homepage. Uh, he says uh, he he had a lot to say about these Superman entries in the last one. Actually, he says, uh, and I'm cherry picking because this is like really Michael long. Bailey having a lot to say about Superman. Yes. <laughs> but this is like Jeff Nettleton length comments, you know. He says, I will totally agree with Shag that the Manhunter's backstory did a lot of damage to. Uh, uh, Lana Lang's character, but frankly, Byrne did a pretty good job of hobbling her at every turn. Even before the Manhunter angles added, she had issues. Uh, basically, he goes on to say she was a small-town girl that thought she was going to marry her high school sweetheart, and then he comes in and tells her about these powers and leaves town. Lana apparently can't handle Clark doing this because she just up and leaves too, wanders around like a hobo, and eventually returns home. And then they tack on this whole Manhunter thing on top of that. Now, once Byrne left Superman, uh, left Superman, the creators that followed up did a lot of damage control in the character. A decade after the whole Millennium fiasco, Jeff Loeb started writing the character, and she really took off. His retconning of her in For All Seasons did a lot to repair the damage Byrne did to her in one of the stories from uh, Lex Luthor. Oh, and this is interesting. In one of the stories from when Lex Luthor became president in The Seeker Files, Jeff Loeb wrote a short story where Lana informs Superman that she's named her son Clark, but she named the son Clark after Martha, not him. This is often overlooked by people that don't want to do the research. So if you've ever seen Lana, you know she's got a son named Clark. And people are like, oh, that's creepy. No, it's Martha Clark was her name. That's where Clark's first name comes from before she got married. Then he goes on to say he is disagreeing with – oh, then when it comes to Perry White, 
Mike says that he's disagreeing with one of the hosts, that being Rob. And he says, unlike Lois and Lana, I think Perry benefited from the backstory that Byrne developed. And he sort of, I like the way he describes Perry White. He says, uh, in pre-crisis, and even the Christopher Reeve movies, he says Perry White was more of a prop than a character. Which is a, that's a good way to sum. I agree with that totally. Perry was. He was a one-note character. But by adding this backstory, he really fleshed out the character. So stick that in your ear, Rob. Yikes. Wow. Okay. I Mike's perfectly it's a, it's a free country. He can be as wrong as he wants. Oh. <laughs> uh, our pal Siskoid, uh, from of course the the network he does first strike, Ohamu We're Not, Lonely Hearts Romance com, Romance Comics Podcast. He said, Etta Candy will be in the Wonder Woman movie as played by Lucy Davis in the digital office. Will that make her a Brit in the World War I context? I do love that actress. Yes, we've now seen her because she gets the big joke at the end of the trailer. Oh, that is hysterical. That is absolutely hilarious. I love it. Yeah. Uh, our pal Zoom Yukonori, of course, we all know from Zoom's Who and all his wonderful entries. And he does CBR's The Line is Drawn and his own blog. He wrote him with a couple of things. In terms of his entries, he mentions his lady cop entry. And it says the lecherous male head behind Liza's headshot was meant to be Hal, the ill-suited boyfriend from First Issue Special Number 4. Looking back on the issue of the artist, did not give us a straight full-on shot of his face. And it almost looked like his hairstyle shifted from straight hair in one panel to a feathered look in another panel. It was the 70s. It was so. the 70s. Uh, he also says, uh, regarding Terry Long, according to the New Teen Titans, Volume 1, Number 20, Terry Long was 29 when Donna Troy was 19. So that is a 10-year 10 10 year age difference. But I am not one to pass judgment. For in the interest of full disclosure, I am 53, and my wife is not yet 40. Woo! Well done, Zoom. <laughs> impressive. Impressive. Most impressive. <laughs> Heard from our buddy Anthony Durso, who does those amazing custom Mago boxes. And he says, the ventriloquist, wasn't there a fan-made film set in the Nolan Batman universe that featured the villain ventriloquist and Scarface? Or did I just imagine that? Well, then Jimmy McGlinchey came back and actually gave a link. And he says, Anthony, I think this is the fan film you're re- referring to. Also includes the Riddler and Zaji. Just watched it. Quite, uh, quite a good right, quite good of a fan-made film. You know what? I'm going to have to check this thing out now. By the way, if you want to check it out yourself, check out the comments on last episode of Who's Who, Update 88, Volume 4. Jimmy McGlinchey's comment will give you the link to the YouTube video to watch. I'm definitely going to have to check this out now. And he says, uh, this is going back to Anthony Durso. He says, Lana Lang, I've always thought of Lana as a bit more Betty to Lois's Veronica. Which I think is hysterical, and it matches up exactly with my philosophy on them. Lana's more of a Betty, and Lois is more of a Veronica, and Maybe it's wrong of me, but I, I who hasn't thought of Betty and Veronica in, in improper ways? I'm sorry. Wow. Um, oh, come on. Really? I, I, well, all right. So, yeah, thank uh, you very much. Don't go, leave me out there. Let's go. I'm just saying it's a, it's a classic dynamic. It's Ginger and Marianne. There's always the good girl and the bad girl. That's always how you do these things. Terry Long, another comment on Terry Long. Very much, everybody hates Terry Long, and everybody could not stop talking about him. <laughs> when my brother was in fourth grade, he wanted a perm because, you know, the 70s. Kid in his class said he, quote, looked like a pervert. I think that story somehow applies here as well. <laughs> um, Chris Franklin, of course, from our network, the Supermates podcast, wrote in to say, late to the party, but I have to speak up for Terry Long. See, again, Terry Long. I can't believe I'm doing this. The whole point of Donna dating and then marrying Terry was to show that Donna was the most grounded of the Titans. She was the den mother, the most normal. Well, aside from Wally, but he had issues about with wanting to be a superhero back then, so that was his bag. So normal Donna, who somehow was a high-paid fashion photographer at age 19, she was mature. She was always mature for her age, even going back to 
even going back to how Nick Carty drew her in the 60s. See, started, that's what I'm talking about. Right. Started dating an older college professor, but Wolfman never made the Titans feel like teens, except for Changeling and Tara. So in his mind, Donna was probably in her mid-20s, but he had to say she was 19 because Jeanette Kahn stuck him with that title. So it's not as intentionally icky as it seems. <laughs> I actually don't dislike Terry Long. I didn't say that. I don't even think I made fun of him in the intro. I never had a problem with the character. I don't know why people hate him so much. I, I like that idea think, that he was a normal guy that bagged Wonder Girl. Good for him, man. I, I think we probably made fun of him quite a bit. I mean, the entry was hideous, too. That, we spent a lot a of time entry, talking about the art. Right. Yeah, yeah. It was Tom Greenberg, so. But I think Green, we probably yeah. made fun of him. And then Tom and Stella certainly took him to task, so. Yeah. But Chris goes on to say, I think it's refreshing when a fictional character finds romance outside of the spandex set, or even the main supporting cast. It broadens the world. I think a lot of the hate directed towards Terry is exemplified by what Shag said. He had a crush on Donna, and this perm-haired schlub was dating her. Hence, all the fangressions against him. And Tom's probably right. He's a problem. Proxy for Marv, but he looked more like Len Wein. <laughs> then we heard from our buddy, uh, and I use that term loosely, Ryan Daly, who's apparently been poaching all of our community for his Secret Origins podcast. Thanks for that. He said uh, he would adhere to the 21 and 7 rule, which is standard in show business, but so far he's been violating that with impunity. <laughs> he also does the Power of Fishnets podcast and give me the Star Wars podcast. Now, it's worth mentioning Power of Fishnets is about Zatanna and Black Canary, which is where we get to it here. He says, Tom Artist draws a cute Zatanna, but I've never been fond of this costume redesign as revealed in Secret Origins number 27. There's nothing objectively wrong with the new costume, but I dislike the pants, the puffy sleeves, and the high-collared shirt. It smacks of the androgynous fashion style and pop music of the late 80s and early 90s that I never cared for, Prince, be Prince being the obvious exception. My personal taste... I don't want Zatanna looking cute. I want her looking sexy and beautiful. And people say I'm sexist. My goodness. Uh, then it was followed up by Clint Robinson from the Coffee and Comics blog and the Armageddon 2001 blog. Man, this guy's just asking for trouble with that. Um, Glutton for punishment, I think is the right term. Because anyway. the Bloodlines blog was not ridiculous enough. <laughs> well, that's Frank's bag. but Right, I know. I'm just saying he wanted to one-up Frank by, you know. I don't think anyone's got an Eclipso blog right now, The Darkness Within, but Clinton goes on to say, This look was my introduction to Zatanna as a character, and I firmly believed for about a year or two that she was some kind of nice vampire girl that just happened to have magical powers. Oh, how you piece things together when you're in middle school. And, you know, we, we called that last episode because the little wings on the back look make her, you know, the, the cape thing makes her look like a vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck Coletta wrote in to say, just a quick note on Etta Candy. Oh, geez, not Terry Long. Uh, anyone who is enjoying <laughs> the brighter DC Rebirth books needs to read The Legend of Wonder Woman by Rene DeLiz ASAP. The origin story, Center of World War II, was beautifully written and drawn, a beautifully written and drawn update of Diana's Amazon heritage, meeting with Steve Trevor and fighting Nazis. Etta is returned to her roots as a Zoftig co-ed, but here she's a confident, self-assured young woman who helps Diana transition to a man's world, and even whips up the Wonder Woman outfit, and does indeed look like Rebel Wilson. I picked this up on a whim and was thoroughly enchanted by it. A sequel has just been greenlit by DC. This is a must-read for anyone who loves Darwin Cook's New Frontier. Whoa, yeah, that's that, quite that's an endorsement. The, yeah, that was the that was sort of the slam at the end of that. I was like, wow, really? Okay, maybe I'll give that a shot. Wow, impressive. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, Alexander Osias from the Armchair Gamer blog says, The end of an era. Long live the loose leaf who's who. Let me just say, I look forward to both the Star Trek Who's Who, which I never read, and I'm curious about what the Star Trek comics tackled, which I never read, and the Legion Who's Who, which I never read, and how it reflected the reality of the LSS at the time, which I did read. 
There we go. All right, Alexander. Okay. And I didn't know about the Armchair Gamer blog. I only found out about that because uh, of some links he had left uh, in a couple of places. Like, oh, he doesn't talk about that often enough. All right. Uh, Dr. Ainge wrote in, he says, sorry for being late to the game. You guys should seriously take a victory lap. I know you did after the first series, but there is some feeling of finality with the end of the second update. Yeah, I feel the same way, Ainge. After this, the who's who are just very different animals to me. So, yeah, the the, the, the update was kind of a, the thing for it for me. Uh, I don't need a victory lap. I just need to get to the loose leaf quicker. That's what I need to do because I'm ready for some fun stuff, and that's going to be awesome. So he goes on to say the weird, uh, the alien race Zarlot was name-dropped in an episode of Supergirl this year, making the weird be in DC TV continuity. Crazy. Wild. Wow. And Wildfire. Now, Ange is part of the Legion of Superbloggers. I mean, we mentioned him earlier, so I didn't go through all of his credits. But uh, he talks about being from the Legion of Superbloggers. He's a bit of an expert. On Wildfire, he says, this isn't a suit. It's a body. Wildfire was able to make with Quizlet's help. The body sort of removed the one thing that made Wildfire unique. So I'm kind of glad it was a short-lived plot for the character. All right. He says, regarding Lana Lang, hubba hubba, <laughs> the Midwest farmer's daughters really make you feel all right. <laughs> A lot of people came out to defend her look, and I think it was uh, purely in male uh, sexual tension-driven messages. <laughs> what a shock. In the appendix, he's, uh, he says, I'm surprised you didn't comment on how much forever people there was in the appendix. They each got a paragraph saying they were now from Earth. Now, Ange, you've listened to this show. In fact, you have comments on almost every single episode of this show. Are you really, really surprised that we didn't comment on the forever people? Hmm. Just think about that for a minute, buddy. Come on. Anyway, and special thanks to Ange for posting all the Supergirl who's who in Secret Files entries over on Twitter over the, after our last episode and tagging us. Those were awesome to see. We appreciate that. I really, why why we would want to talk about the forever people more. <laughs> have you no decency, sir? At long last, have you no decency? <laughs> <laughs> Poor uh, Ange. Yeah. He probably just worked a double at the hospital and he's having the heroes make fun of him. <laughs> His hands are coated in blood and he's just oh, like, these guys. <laughs> well, I assume that happens as a doctor. Anyway, Diablo Frank from the World Spine Podcast Network, Marvel Superheroes, Bloodlines, Idolhead of Diablo, Wonder Woman, Power of the Atom, plus blogs, plus I think he does the Serial Podcast as well. He writes in to say, after our beloved DC samplers were no more, now they're back, of course, the next bit of free DC advertainment, I love that word, I devoted too much time and memory space to was DC Focus. It was basically an issue of Marvel Age, but since DC's universe was so unfamiliar to a young zombie like me, and their faulty hype machine only spit things out once every other blue moon, it provided a rare gateway to another continuity. I think the damn thing sold me on Millennium, <laughs> or at least the first month's worth before I wised up. It also introduced me to the Wanderers, oh boy, Gosh. With, with an intriguing, t- it's like saying it also gave me VD, with an intriguing <laughs> tagline along the lines of, they're trying to solve the greatest mystery of all, who killed them? It was a great premise along the lines of the noir classic DOA, but then you read about the stupid characters who look, still look like morts after a radical redesign and whose name sounded like NPCs from an especially lazy game master, the answer was still no thank you very much. Despite the sweet Robert Campanella inks, there's also my general apply to the art of Dave Hoover. Sucking is right there in his name. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, Frank. Uh, you, know, so you have to crawl through the madness to find gems like that sometimes. Oh, goodness. 
Uh, later on, he goes on to say, I love me some Titans Hunt, but you're never going to convince me that a team of villains shared a high-tech armor that incidentally was covered in coarse horsehair to fool people <laughs> into thinking that they were a single were-creature. It takes the Wildebeest Society to make Jericho look like a plausible arch-villain by comparison. Baby Wildebeest finally made this concept sensible. Now, or sensical. I don't think that sentence about baby wildebeest being sensical has ever been uttered or ever will be uttered again. But uh, you, you, when you draw that comparison, Frank, I can't help but agree with you. He says, Tom Artis draws the cutest, most vibrant Zatanna, and this costume design is so much better than the Esteban Moroto Bauhaus fangirl take. Aside from the Batwing cape is drawn here, this might be my favorite Z look, classy and stylish and unique. And, you know, and I have to say, guys, before Ryan Daly came out of the scene, back when he was still, you know, that long-haired punk in high school, like to piss off his parents, Frank was sort of the Zatanna expert around the block. Because he had the Justice League Detroit blog, so we all kind of looked to him as our Satana expert. So I think his word carries some weight, and I also happen to enjoy that costume quite a bit. So huh, stick it in your ear, Ryan Daly. That probably had like three pierced ears. Anyway, uh, Frank then goes on to say, Zuggernaut is an aliens, like the movie, alien xenomorph as a supervillain. I find that hard to ris- resist. Even Joe Brozowski couldn't screw that up. Um, newsflash to you, Frank. Yes, yes, he did. Uh, then he goes on to say, look, it's Amanda Waller. It feels like years since I've seen The Wall, one of the greatest comic book characters of the modern era drawn correctly. I agree with that. I miss The Old Wall. Uh, he says, it's a sad statement uh, that my two episodes of The Diana Prince of Wonder Woman are still the go-to recommendation for the FW podcast. But the last time I checked, there wasn't much else out there. The third show was supposed to get produced over a month ago, but I got bogged down in other projects. I was also trying to wait to see the ultimate edition of Batman v Superman. But this week I realized that the only theatrical version will be available to rent anytime soon. I was perfectly happy to delay my viewing for that much longer. Then Mac wanted to see it, and we pulled together the $20 before recording a 105-minute podcast with about five minutes of Wonder Woman talk. So maybe I can cobble together a third episode about Earth One and the early issues of Legend of Wonder Woman over the holiday weekend. It's amazing that there's so little Wonder Woman podcasty stuff out there. It's, it's Wonder Woman, for Pete's sakes. That's it, absolutely, and maybe we're just not looking in the right places. Like, I didn't think there was a Flash comic book podcast, but then a bunch of people posted, there's like five of them. Uh, so I was okay. like, oh, I didn't know those were out there. But then again, maybe they all just started recently. I don't mm. know. So that Wonder Woman episode uh, did come out. Came out on July, f- well, he got one out on July 5th, but it has nothing to do with what he just described. This is Wonder Woman 77, special number three. So, eh, it's worth listening to. Uh, then he goes on to say, the problem with Lana Lang and Ma, and this is interesting here, the problem with Lana Lang and Ma and Pa Kent is that they are part of Superboy's story, not Superman's. I don't know why Byrne felt the need to treat Kal-El like a Marvel mutant, not getting any powers before puberty, and not enough of a superhero until adulthood. It played a big role in making Superman lame to anyone who wasn't drinking Kool-Aid out of the triangular glass with a number on the bottom, which is pretty funny. Uh, aside from the raw power, and even though... Even that was arguable for a while. What set Superman apart from any other random hero? Not only had he been the first superhero, but he was also set apart and careful around weak humanity because he was born with his abilities far beyond those of other men. Kal-El had a Kryptonian mind, and it took necessary precautions that isolated him from humanity as he knew it, making him a singular being in existence. Then he goes on to talk about the transition from Superboy to Superman. That transition was the death of his parents and moving on from his small town sweetheart to the big city and uh, the love of his life. By removing Superboy from continuity, Byrne hobbled the Man of Steel by having all these lingering elements from Smallville floating around, extending his adolescence, and cluttering his cast. It made him much less super and even cast doubt on his manhood when the simplest personal conflict sent him back to the farm for advice. 
So I think what Frank is saying here, to sum it up, he's basically saying that Byrne is Superman's helicopter parent. Hmm. Basically kept Superman from growing up. And then he goes on to say, Wed Eiling uh, is another excellent supporting character, Captain Adams, J. Jonah Jameson, but with Norman Osborn's malevolence, and a utility player in the greater DC universe. That I, This is Shag. I totally agree with that. Then he said, goes, speaks utter nonsense and says, it was an utter waste turning him into the general. I don't agree with that, Frank. Uh, I think he was great. It was a great evolution for the character. I think they had run the gambit with White Eiling, but uh, Rob didn't seem to have much interest in General White Eiling last issue. Uh, you got to get a flavor for this character. He is a really great addition to the DC Universe, Rob. Okay. Final he is on. Ed- every military bad guy from every 80s movie. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Uh, Final one wrote in to say a couple of quick comments. Uh, and one long rant, which we'll get to. Uh, he says, this covers a total break from the usual style of Uzu, so I should be against it, but it's just so charming. It's definitely my favorite of all the updates. Me too. Talking about the cover. Yeah. Yes, the cover. It was great. Uh, <laughs> I like that. Now remember, folks, Philemon is known in the annals of Who's Who feedback as usually saying the opposite of anything that makes sense. His favorite characters include Jericho, which is insane, things like that. So he says here, we do not talk about the wildebeest around the Philemon household. <laughs> For my money, the whole debacle was an imaginary tale or some nightmarish dr- fever dream. Jericho is the greatest, the most loyal titan of them all. Because if you don't know how the titans, hen- titans hunt ended, it doesn't end well for the wildebeest and, and Jericho. Let's just put it that way. All right. Um, then he goes on about Terry Long. He, as I said, he usually says the opposite of what most other people say. And here's a perfect example. But he makes a good argument. He says, Terry Long. Okay, here it goes. I love Terry. I love the Terry Donna romance. Everything about him is awesome, even the stupid 70s orange afro. Here's my argument. Does anyone spend any great amount of time analyzing what Superman sees in Lois Lane? Depending on the writer, she's often classified as bossy, deceitful, and inept. Probably not the right word, but what else do you call it when every scheme she hatches results in her being kidnapped or needing Superman to save her? How about Batman and Vicki Vale? I couldn't even tell you what character traits she possesses other than being generally hot. Which, by the way, we kind of proved that this issue. Um, but anyway, this episode. Anyway, Philemon goes on to say, My point is, no one complains about male heroes choosing civilian girlfriends. Female superheroes, though, always need to have someone who is their equal. Black Canary, of course she needs another similarly capable crime fighter like Green Arrow. Mara has to be paired with Aquaman. Ice can't even go on a date with someone, some average Joe unless he has a power ring on, of course. Wonder Woman especially as the paragon, paragon of female superhero can only be attracted to Steve Trevor if he proves himself to be adequately heroic by fighting the Nazis or spies. Then comes Donna Troy and her love for Terry Long. It's a breath of fresh air. No, Terry isn't a crime-fighting hero. Donna doesn't need a hero. She can bench-press a city bus on her own. But someone who makes her laugh? Terry has shown often in Teen Titans to have a sharp sense of humor. Someone who respects and honors the culture that is so important to Donna. Remember that Terry and Donna met when, she, when he was teaching Hellenistic history and was shown often to be immersed and knowledgeable in its culture. Someone who is nurturing and kind? Just look at Terry. Just look how Terry is adoringly – sorry, look how Terry is looking adoringly at his daughter Jenny in the entry. I don't care who you are. A man who's good with his kids is always attractive. Yes, the age difference, as others have said, about 10 years, is concerning. And as a teacher myself, the idea of them meeting as an instructor and student is unpleasant to consider. But the relationship between these two not only makes sense, but it broke the barriers in comic books that no one else was willing to do at the time. I love the idea that Donna saw qualities in Terry beyond just the physical and was drawn to the internal goodness of this man. Woof. Quite a long thing. Makes a lot of sense when he explains it that way. But I think the more important piece to take away from this, it's something we've talked about before on the show, is that Philemon is molding the brains of the future students of America, which, hmm. terif- which terrifies me. So uh, it gives me nightmares at night. I agree with a lot of what he said, though. I really did. 
It makes I, a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Rift says, is wildebeest the plural of wildebeest, or is it wildebeest? <laughs> it's the Wildby Society, I think. Uh, you can join it. You send in your money, your ma- you send some money in the mail, and you get a free patch. Anyway, uh, Rift Wildby curious. Whoa! Rift goes on to say, Abby Cable smoking hot, and she's clearly not worried about how people look. So hey, I'm in with a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rift. Uh, Keith G. Baker from Sports and Comics over on Twitter says, Your mention of the theme song brings up an excellent point. Will there be a new theme song for the Star Trek and Legion episodes? Uh, I can't speak to Legion. Uh, Star Trek, we're working on it. Are you really? Mm-hmm. News to me. I had no idea. No, Legion, we do not plan on having a song, but I put me in contact with whoever you're working with, please. <laughs> uh, Alexander Courage. Oh, okay. Well, oh, perfect. Right. <laughs> I'll just reach out to Hans Zimmer then. Uh, Stella says, uh, again, from Batgirl Oracle, she says, the third ventriloquist was Shauna Belzer and was introduced in the New 52 in the pages of Gail Simone's Batgirl. She was a terrible villain and yet another cause slash symptom of the dark tone during that run. Shauna's puppet, Ferdy, was a pervy doll who would threaten people with terrible sexual acts. Oh, Lord. Oh. Jeez. Thanks for sharing that, Stella. Oh, boy. <laughs> Uh, Clint Robinson came back in and he said, regarding my iTunes review, I did have to edit it. I spelled, I spelled Jericho about as well as Shag pronounces words. Ouch. Terry Long, sigh. His entire entry should have been just lucky bastard who managed to marry Donna Troy. Later life events include yelling about how Donna's super heroics endangered the child and dragging out a custody battle longer than the trial of Barry Allen. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty long. There That's you go, Far Long. <laughs> uh, Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade podcast wrote, Rob, thank you, thank you, thank you, all caps. For a long time, I've been trying to remember what the name of a Nickelodeon TV show video comics that would show, re- show read through DC Comics in the early 80s. I remember watching them as a kid whenever I was flipping through the channels that came across it. The one I remember was most was Green Lantern. My life's quest is now complete. Now to start a new one to see if there's any place in the world on the World Wide Web I can watch the shows again. If anyone could help a fellow out, I would very much appreciate it. Great show, guys. Keep up the excellent work. Yeah, Pat, I would love it if I could find video comics, but I have never been able to find them. I've never all the times I've been at conventions and you go to like, you know, those sketchy, you know, VHS or now DVD bootleg dealers, no one ever has it. No one – I've never seen it. Um, the only thing – there is a portion of an episode on YouTube and there's the opening credits on YouTube where you see a Firestorm comic prominently <laughs> displayed. Uh, but that's it. The show has just disappeared down the memory hole and I'm, I'm amazed when you consider that you can find virtually everything on bootleg if not official. Um, every geeky related thing has been archived by some nerd out there. But video comics, not yet. But I, I, hold, I hold out hope. No, when's the last time you checked? Because I was amazed. A long a, time ago. I mean, I haven't yeah. been to a convention in a long time. So. Well, I meant, I meant YouTube because, like, uh, I was – for a long time I was looking for something called – I think it's called The Third Eye. It was this Nickelodeon thing where they were like, I deny you the nidus. And I mentioned it on one of our shows because I had searched for it a few years before, no luck. And suddenly someone came back and gave me, like, a bunch of links to it because it was all up on YouTube now. Like, there's stuff going up on YouTube, tons of – you know, millions of things every day. So yeah. it could be there now. That's true. Well, I checked a couple of weeks ago and there was oh, nothing. okay. So never, I, never mind keeping that. up with it a little bit. But yeah, so far, yeah, so far I'm looking at right now. There is uh, one episode which is a Swamp Thing. They do the Swamp <laughs> Thing thing, and then there's the the promo, which is the the kids and the nerds on the bikes riding to get their comics, and it was just so exciting. So yeah, you can at least see that. But yeah, somebody does remember it. That's awesome. Yep. 
Heard from Wolfgang Hartz. Uh, he says, I'm surprised that Frank Miller hasn't drawn anything for the Who's Who volumes you two covered. You know, given the timing of Batman Year One and Batman The Dark Knight Returns, it is sort of surprising that he didn't do any entries for Who's Who, because he was obviously, you know, taking a paycheck from DC at the time. Yeah, he did covers and stuff. So, yeah, yeah that is surprising, yeah. Uh, Phil Wagner writes in to say, uh, I know in one early episode, Shag mentioned that these podcasts were not going to be permanently recorded for posterity. I just want you to know I'll be holding on to them for a long time once I re- uh, recollected all the issues I no longer have. It'll be fun to go through these issues while listening to your running commentary. As much as I am looking forward to future episodes, I do have a comment to make up the proposed format. You had mentioned possibly covering Huzu and Star Trek in one episode and Huzu and Legion in maybe three or four. I'd prefer that you stick with the one issue per format, one issue per episode format. It gives each episode a good structure, a sense of true beginning, middle, and end, just like other indexing podcasts which go issue to issue even when dealing with a multi-issue story arc. And lastly, Rob, I'd like to hear I'd like to hear Rob on the Who's Who and Legion podcast. I don't mean to torture him, but we we in the Catholic Church have something called a devil's advocate whose job <laughs> is to dig up the dirt, if you will, on persons who are being promoted for sainthood to prove that said persons are not worthy of this title. Rob could serve as a devil's advocate toward the Legion, pointing out all he dislikes or just doesn't get about the Legion. Such interplay between Rob and Shag over the Legion could be fun. You know, I mean, I appreciate that, uh, Phil, but I feel like it would just be me being a jerk of, like, raining on their parade. I really just don't get the Legion, why people think it's interesting or good or whatever. I've read some stories that were good, but to me, just most of it, nah. And, you know, the who's who is about celebrating, and I don't want to be the guy who's like, what is this about? While while Shag and the rest of the guys, you know, wax on about Chemical Lad or something. Well, kind of Phil with a bull zone, too, is uh, we don't want him. Uh, we don't want Rob there, so that's part of it too. But I appreciate everything you said, and thank you for the nice comments. Uh, part of the reason, though, is to, to rush through those rather than do one issue at a time. It is to get to the loosely sooner, because the well, the core of the podcast is who's who entirety. Uh, the, or sorry, the mission of the podcast is to cover all of who's who entirety. The core of the show really is the the original volume and the updates. That's really where the core of, of what we want right, to get to. Right, because if is. we do seven legions and two Star Treks, that's nine months. That's yeah, a exactly. lot to, to devote. Now, we are going to do two Star Treks, but just two. I mean, just one each. Yeah. One book like each. we're doing these annuals. We're doing two the, two episodes for the yep. annuals, too, yep. just to get it covered. And the, the Legion stuff, is, is if you've never read it, it's funky. It's not like a Who's Who comic. Right, I mean, right. There are Who's Who entries, but then there's weird stories in there, and some of it's great some of it's not and some so. characters get like a paragraph like a head and a paragraph right? yeah yeah it's very it's very different very very different yeah. so all right then we heard from david ace Gutierrez, the pod uh, pod dylan executive producer he says he loved the stella and tom panarese on terry long great bit also shag i believe the mort marrying well above his class is not something foreign to you or me terry long is us <laughs> I can say I have met David's wife, and he is absolutely correct. He definitely married up, and I have met my own wife, and yes, I was fortunate enough to marry up as well. Then he goes on to say, and the guy who complained about Shag's stick can kiss my ass. And Clinton Robinson came back and said, so say we all. And uh, I, I just want to take a moment to, to, I guess, get personal? I don't know. Um, last episode, I talked a little about one of the reviews we got that got under my skin more than it shouldn't have. Uh, basically it was a guy taking me to task with my whole she's hot thing and uh, it bothered me a little bit and I talked about it on the show but the outpouring from you guys was amazing and I'm just going to read a few things here and there Buck Roulette, Buck Roulette wrote in to say in regards to the most recent who's who I don't think Shag is too crass or over mis- overly mis- 
<laughs> and here's an example of me not being able to say words. Uh, misogynistic. Thank you. Uh, shag is, is, I'm sorry, I says, I don't think that Shag is too crass or overly misogynistic. If anyone pays attention, Shag comments on the sexiness of the men often enough for me to be happy. As a bisexual man, I have no complaints with the commentary on the hotness of the comic characters. Thank you, Buck. I appreciate that. Then Michael Bailey, uh, over on Facebook, and I'm just reading bits of this. He wrote a, a very long thing on Facebook, basically saying that he listened to the podcast, he wasn't going to write anything, but then he felt compelled. He says, now normally when a friend is called out for something uh, on one of his shows, I let the friend deal with it. But I've known Shag for a really long time, so I feel like I need to come out to his defense, even though he hasn't asked me to. The thing that bugs me about this accusation is that Shag is, to a certain extent, playing a character. Newsflash, he was not born the irredeemable Shag. His real name is Raul Julia, but the confusion that would cause would have been considerable. So the very fact that he refers to himself as the irredeemable Shag should clue you in on some of what you're hearing is an act meant to make Shag stand out from the pack. More to the point, the fact that Shag points out how hot a character is makes up only 10% of his commentary, if that. Uh, this forgets the 70%, which is comprised of damn good and well-researched and thought-out insight into the subject. And the 20% of, of telling people they're wrong. Shag is good at what he does. So if you're going to focus on, actually, let me put this differently. If you choose to focus on what you're missing, you are missing so much great material. In summation, leave Shag alone. He's a good guy and a good friend, and he's been nothing but respectful to the people in his life. Anyone wants to try and make him seem like a bad guy has to deal with me. That was very sweet of Mike. Completely unsolicited. I had been away from my phone for a few hours because, you know, life. And I came back to my phone, and Mike had posted that up there. And 60 people liked the post. And I just want to give a very special thank you to a number of people who actually posted comments, uh, a lot of very supportive comments. And I guess, again, I guess I'm, gonna, I'm making it probably a bigger deal out of than it really should have been because it was just one review. It's not that big a deal. But the support of, of you guys, this community that came out, I, I say it all the time. You guys are the greatest podcast listening community in the world. To come out with all the wonderful comments you guys said, I mean, a lot of people were mentioning my family and on the podcast about how I talk about supporting my daughter and my interest in strong, well-written, strong female characters and those kind of things. Guys, I... I got man tears. It was just incredible. And these, these specifically are the people who gave really nice comments there. Uh, thank you to Aaron Head Moss, Clinton Robinson, Dale Russell, Dale Who, Daniel Budnick, Daniel Sinelka Adams, David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Grayson, Gordon Tolt, J. David Weeder, Mark Lax, Martin Gray, Melissa Phillips, Mike Pe uh, Peacock, Mike Zumo, Neil Whitney, Nicholas Prom, Rachel Bailey, Robert Ward, Thomas Mattis, Tom Panarese, uh, Blaine Dowler, and Zoom Yuganori. Thank you guys so very much. I really, really appreciate it. You guys, uh, you, you, you made me feel a lot better. So thank you. All right. Shut that part of the show down. Let's get back into the, your feedback, folks. Caleb now wrote in to say, as I'm listening to the newest podcast, there was a comment talking about Robin, um, maybe the only other teen characters that uh, teens were drawn to. We had said that, that maybe we were talking about teen characters and how Robin was probably the only one that people really liked. And he wrote in to say, I would argue that Firestorm and Cyborg were that for me at a young age thanks to the Superpowers cartoon. Anyways, just my two senses I'm listening uh, love the show so far. You know, he makes a fair point. You know, we may be a little bit too old to think about the Teen Titans or Firestorm or even Young Justice as teen characters that young guys and girls would have associated with and actually made a connection to. Because, you know, to our generation, Robin really was the only teen character. I mean, you weren't going to glom onto Speedy prior to the new Teen Titans. He wasn't going to be your favorite. And um, I think he makes a good point. Maybe so. I, I've, I've never been a teen sidekick guy, though. I just, you know, I was like Aquaman more than Aqualad, Batman more than Robin. I don't know. I don't know. When you get a book like Young Justice that was exceptional, it's, uh, I can see why you might get into it. So, mm. uh, In fact, I'm probably going to give the new Super Sons book a try. 
the one that teams up, even though I can't stand Damien, the art looks a lot like uh, the Young Justice art and, you know, Damien and, and Clark's son together. It could be fun. Hmm. So. Then we heard from Al Gerding from the All-Star Comics Review Podcast. He wrote in about the Ultra Humanite entry. He goes, oh, man, DC must not consider the ant Ultra Humanite as canon after the crisis. <laughs> That's right. He put his brain into the body of a giant ant at one point, didn't he? I <laughs> uh, heard from Bradley Null. A uh, huge thanks to Bradley. He, is con- he has been continuing to post images over on Instagram using our hashtag. Thank you so much for that, Bradley. And then Michael Bailey wrote in again. He says, look, oh, these are Twitter posts. He said, looking forward to the 89 annual Who's Who entries on the Fire and Water podcast. Superman got robbed in Action Comics annual number two. Mike, you are absolutely correct. And uh, I've been saying it all episode. And then he says he agrees with Rob about the villains introduced by uh, Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Too bad most of them were killed in 2006. <gasps> really? That's a shame. Yeah, I, did, I, did, I didn't know that. Disappointing. But, yeah, geez. Uh, Mike Gillis from uh, Radio vs. the Martians, podcast of La Vista, and the upcoming Hex and Violence, which will take a look at the Jonah Hex movie one minute at a time. He says, I really miss old school... <laughs> I really miss old school Amanda Waller. She's one of the most iconic and immediately recognizable non-powered supporting DC characters. And there aren't a lot of overweight characters as it is. And she always made being fat just look powerful. It's true. Disappointing. Uh, Quick comment on that. Um, In the middle of this recording, Rob and I got interrupted. It'll be edited out. You guys won't even hear it. But my stepson just got home. It's Thursday night. Uh, The Suicide Squad premiere just occurred and he did come in and say he felt like amanda waller was perfect in the movie her her personality was really really great so that's something to, to, to cheer for at least okay uh gene hendrix from the hammer strikes podcast and blog legend of superheroes quantum cast and more over on two true freaks said i don't know if i'm proud of you shag or disappointed i didn't hear one remark on lana lang from the cover <laughs> well she was hot but i was more focused on uh, abby cable i think on that mm-hmm. cover <laughs> I uh, heard from Rob Williams from the Generation X-Wing podcast. He says, I, was always, I always found the Oberon pick creepy and poorly drawn. Yeah, I, you aren't kidding, buddy. That Oberon picture still gives me nightmares. I, you know, it's funny. I'll be driving, and I just had, suddenly have a, I'll have a flash of Ice's face from that uh, entry. It's, like a, it's like almost like a living nightmare. It doesn't stop. Uh, Doug Zawisha, who writes comic reviews over on Comicosity, and he has his my uh, has a Doom Patrol blog over at My Greatest Adventure 80, says, just occurred to me while re-listening to our Who's Who update that Greg Rucka is back at DC and we might stand a chance for a Blackhawk book. <laughs> That'd be interesting. Mm, yeah, I'd like to see that. Right, then, Willie, then Willie Yarborough, one of our biggest supporters over on Twitter, he wrote in about Amanda Waller. He says, one of my all-time favorite characters followed her for 30 years. So happy to have her early appearances. Right. Uh, Vigilante at Vigilante Adrian. That's a dark hashtag. Uh, I mean a dark handle, considering what happened to him. He said, I really hope you talk about the heckler at some point. You're the only one, Vigilante. Uh, but uh, we will get to it because he was in the loose leaf. Yes, he was. And Adrian, uh, and uh, Adrian, Vigilante's been on this kick for a while. And, in fact, if you really want to be specific, we just talked about the heckler. There you go. Mm-hmm. All right. Sean Merrick uh, from the Worst Collection Ever podcast, which is funny, about the Oberon picture. He says, I know the face sucks, but how can you not talk about that pose? Yeah, it's freaky. Uh, Fire and ice are actually holding Oberon up in the air, and his legs are spread wide and sort of a here's my junk shot. It's, it's so many messed up things about that picture. Thank you for bringing that up, Sean. Nightmares. Uh, lost my place at Kevin Hasty Two said I totally stole this handle from you guys. Thanks for the idea. Love your podcast. Listening to Who's Who Number Four now. Is that when we're going through the feedback and we say I lost my place? 
I guess so. I, yeah, <laughs> I guess that's what it is. It's funny. Uh, Jeffrey Brown at uh, T-S-U-J-L. Jisuji Tunes. Oh, okay. Okay, right. I'm sorry. Uh, and he says, uh, Wotan Clan ain't nothing to mess with. Motan Clan, Wotan Clan ain't nothing to mess with. <laughs> I said that as white as possible. Uh, Michelle Fief uh, from Copra. He does the book Copra. Uh, which was a big thing on uh, Comixology not too long ago. He says, regarding uh, Grey Mars Maxwell Lord, I love this Grey Mars drawing of the JLI. I'm so glad Jag and Rumble's not going to kick out of the tiniest piece of artwork DC ever published. <laughs> All this and more in their latest Suzu podcast episode. <laughs> Thank you for the shout Yes, it was postage stamp yeah. image of, of the JLI, but dang, we were fascinated by it. <laughs> we heard from Scott Rowland, who says... Uh, Oh, he posted. Oh, Scott, trying to get get under my uh, <laughs> under my nerves here, because Fire and Water podcast. Because I always think of them when I see this character, and he posted a link to Composite Superman, which was drawn by Doc Shaner. Now, admittedly, it's a really nice drawing of Composite Superman by Doc Shaner, but still, it's Composite Superman, Scott. Then our buddy Paul Hicks, we've talked about him a few times. He posted an image, and it says Rift meets the loose leaf who's who. And it's actually a picture of uh, apparently a sneaky picture that Paul took while Rift was looking through it. It's two binders faced open, and he's looking at them. And uh, Rift came back to say, I can't believe Paul has them all. And it was a sneaky picture. And it's some great news looking forward to the who's who episodes. And uh, Ange said, uh, came in and said, I only have my A to L binder. M to Z probably got accidentally thrown out by my folks. Now, this image is great. I would like to point out, folks, as Rift is looking through it, he's on the Aries page and the Green Lantern John Stewart page. However, the backside is the Aquaman entry. So you've got one binder open to Aquaman. You know... Since the other entry is clearly on G, Paul, you could have took the effort to put the other entry on Firestorm. I'm just saying. It would be a little bit to back me up here, buddy. <sighs> Little Russell Burge from the Legion of Superbloggers directed us to a Facebook post by none other than Carl Kiesel, who posted the original art for his Female Furies Who's Who page. Uh, he wrote, I absolutely love both times DC did his Who's Who books. It gave me a chance to ink some iconic characters and creators. Carmen Infantino's Flash, for instance, Be Still My Heart. And it let me draw some characters I loved, like Kirby's Female Furies here. Now, to be fair, this is we are jumping ahead a little bit. This is the loose leaf drawings, but it's so gorgeous. And, and it's so timely being it's Who's Who, and Carl just posted it. We couldn't not do it. It's a great image from the loose leaf Who's Who of the Female Furies. You'll see it in subsequent months uh, if you don't own them already, but it's a great piece. And he goes on to talk quite a bit about the, uh, the fourth world characters there, too. It's a really nice piece. It really is. Now, folks, if you're not already friends with Carl Kiesel on Facebook, you really need to make that happen. Because not only did he post this one, he then went ahead and posted another loose leaf entry for Punch and Julie, which Michael Bailey directed us to. And he says, Suicide Squad notes, Punch and Julie Punch and Julie are two C-level villains whose shtick is to use puppet and slapstick-related gags and gizmos to commit crimes with. The best that can be said about them is that they were created by Steve Ditko. As far as I was concerned, no one in their right mind would actually want to use them. Proving once again how wrong I can be or how crazy John Ostrander is. What I saw as a derivative and bland, John saw as a blank slate. What he, aided and embedded by his wife and co-conspirator Kim Gale, decided to do was make them crazed yuppies. A funhouse reflection of the Reagan-era me generation. Their version owed more than a little to Michael and Stephanie from the Newhart Show. 
And uh, he posted the black and white image, and he says uh, how it's definitely lifted from the Norman Rockwell Saturday Evening Post cover styles. Um, and it's really it's a great image of, of Punch and Julie, and they've got their baby there. The baby's playing with a gun. The dog's tied up. The building blocks spell out extortion. I mean, it's just absolutely adorable. And I've said it before. I mean, DC was really sort of circling around unknowingly this idea of the Harlequin character. I mean, Julie is sort of a prototype Harlequin. Uh, I would say the girl from the uh, Amalgamum, which was the Joker there, the female heroic Joker, was sort of a, a proto-Harlequin. I think DC was heading in this direction without even knowing it. And uh, this is just another example of it. And Harley Quinn's smoking hot when Carl Kieser draws her, by the way. Absolutely love this. And by the way, um, if you like Norman Rockwell, uh, somebody contact me. Remind me to tell you about this time. I, I just recently went to a Norman Rockwell exhibit, which was amazing. So. Hmm. All right. Yeah, it's a really nice piece. It's real beautifully designed, well-rendered. Uh, yeah, it's really, really quite nice. See? The loose leaves, Rob. The loose leaves are awesome. Okay, uh, we're giving now. We're going on to the people who shared about uh, info on our show on their social media timeline: Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus. Please. Uh, so we're going to go through that list. I, I didn't even. Quickly. I didn't even check Google Plus. I take that off. I know. Yeah, <laughs> ridiculous. Nobody's. Yeah, it's a ghost town. Anyway, these uh, these people deserve some thanks for plugging our show. Al Girding, uh, Alexi Danilin, Bradley Null, Brian Yardley, Buck Buck Rillette, Candela's right hand, Chris Franklin, Chuck Rodriguez, Clinton Robinson, Comic Reflections, David Byer Jr., David Pasquarella, DC in the Indies, Derek William Crabb, Gabu Frank, Dr. Junior Nerdologist, Ed Moore, Film and Water Podcast. Hey, that's me. FKA Jason, Jared West, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremy Gunther, Jesse Gordon, Joseph, John K. Mulder, Jonathan Brown, KG Baker, Connell, Court Industries, Luke Dobb, Mark Paws, Martin Gray, Michael Bailey, Michelle Fief, Pod Dillon. Hey, that's me. Power Fishnets, Rift, Robert Lewis, Rolled Spine Podcast. Hey, that's me. Scott Rowland, Silver and Gold, <laughs> Siskoid, Stella, The Batman Universe, The Hammer Strikes, Uncle Earl, Earl Uncle Earl, Warlord Worlds, Willie Arbor, Xenozoic, Xenophiles. Which is not you. This is not me. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, time now for our Zoom's Who entry. And this is Zoom Yukonori's addendum to the definitive directory of the DC Universe. As you know, or if you don't, Zoom creates these fake Who's Who entries, which are absolutely stunning. DC could take a page for them in Young Animals book and, and see how to do it right. Oh, that was a bit of a burn. Anyway, um, and Zoom put together for us this month Superwoman. Yes, from the... Uh, from Superman Miracle Monday and DC Comics Presents Annual Number 2. Now, this is Kristen Wells from the 29th century. And the details of her, and I haven't read these comics, but I did read Zoom's entry here. The gist of it is she comes back in time to study this thing called Miracle Monday and this superhero named Superwoman. And she finds, uh, well, she, she comes back in time and pretends to be Lois's uh, assistant. While she's studying all this, she stumbles across the Superwoman costume that apparently Clark had produced or created or bought or whatever for Supergirl for use, but Supergirl chose not to use it, and she realizes at that point that she has to assume the identity of Superwoman. So again, it's sort of like I am my own grandpa. She came back in time to uh, observe Superwoman and ends up becoming Superwoman. And then she comes back on other occasions as well for other crossovers. And, or not crossovers, but other stories. So It's a great entry. He did a wonderful job. It is art by Keith Pollard and Zoom Yukonori. She looks beautiful. She's sexy but powerful. She's standing there bold with hands on hips in a very Superman-type pose or Supergirl pose, if you will. In the background, you see her face uh, in the serpent and you see her creating a warp there and, uh, and stopping a bad guy. It's really, really nice. Oh, it's wonderful. He always does amazing work. I mean, we get these, like, one a week from him I'm like I, I you know as he mentioned he's got a wife who's like 13 years younger than him I don't know why he's wasting time doing this stuff 
<laughs> you make a very valid point, sir. You make a very, very valid Leave point. Leave me alone, honey. I'm drawing Superwoman in trees. What? What are you doing? Come on. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, I think that's going to do it for this month. Uh, the annuals are certainly an interesting trip and an and interesting, fun little journey, and I'm going to enjoy next month as well, I think. So. Uh, you can find my friend Rob over at the AquamanShrine.net, which is a great site dedicated to some guy that rides seahorses and likes to throw whiskey bottles on the ground. You can also find oh, him God. on <laughs> you can find him on Twitter under pretty much every handle on Twitter is his. From you, you heard in the Twitter feedback there, or Aquaman and Film and Water and Pod Dylan and Treasury Comics and all this other stuff. He's <laughs> Also on Facebook under Aquaman Shrine. You can find me at Firestorm Fan on Facebook and Twitter. More importantly, you can find us at the fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook in the Fire and Water Podcast group or on our Twitter handle. Folks, until next time, who's next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Return with me to our native land. It's fighting for freedom. No, it's the Blackhawks who fight for liberty and freedom.